This episode of the Secret Origins Podcast is dedicated to the memory of Murphy Anderson. You're listening to episode 21 of the Secret Origins Podcast, featuring not so much the origin of Jonah Hex as the epilogue to his adventures. Also, the Black Condor origin, which is just crazy as fuck. The Secret Origins Podcast, a review show dedicated to the Secret Origins comics published by DC in the 1980s. I'm your host, Ryan Daly, and I am thrilled to kick this exciting episode off with two guests to talk about the origin of Jonah Hex. My first guest is making his long-awaited return to the Secret Origins Podcast. He last appeared way back on Episode 2 when we covered the origin of Blue Beetle. After 20 episodes, please welcome from the Court Industries blog, Mr. Tim Wallace. How are you doing, Tim? I am doing great, Ryan. Thanks for having me back. It has been quite a while, and uh, I'm very excited to be here. I'm thrilled to have you back, and I'm even a little bit nostalgic already because I went back and looked at that second episode we did. That episode was just over an hour long, and when I look at the three-hour episodes that I've been churning out the last couple of weeks, boy, those were good times. I have thought that same thing listening to some of the shows. Like, <laughs> man, did I get did I get shortchanged on this? Like, No, I just didn't know what I was doing back then. <laughs> Okay, and my second guest is making his first appearance here on Secret Origins, but I'm a huge fan of his show, Radio vs. the Martians, and I'm thrilled to have him. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome Mike Gillis to the program. How are you, Mike? I'm doing great. Can't wait to get started on this. I love Hex. You love Hex. Awesome. Good to hear. Okay, well, folks, if you are tuning into this podcast for the first time, Secret Origins was an anthology series published by DC Comics, with each issue telling the origin of at least one hero or villain from the DC Universe. The series ran for 50 issues between January of 1986 and June of 1990, and also included three annuals and one special. All told, between the 54 comics with the Secret Origins banner, something like 120 stories were chronicled in this series. But if I'm not mistaken, this is the only story that depicts the featured character as a stuffed corpse when the tale begins. (laughs) Yeah, that was not what I expected when I opened this comic for the first time. I I guess I'd I'd heard about it before, and I know that the stuffed corpse actually made a cameo in Kingdom Come, too. So it was actually in a restaurant, but I don't know how hungry I would be, you know, to eat manicotti, and I look up, and there's an embalmed human standing next to me. (laughs) Especially an embalmed human with a body count now, as we're going to learn. But (laughs) I guess it depends on how well he wore that hat. Oh, man, yeah. So 
Yeah, he's wearing a bit of the uh, Back to the Future Marty McFly um, going back to 1885 kind of yes. television host. Oh, it is, too. isn't it? Yeah, it's 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 a wonderful little sequin sort of outfit. And if you put if Hex woke up in that outfit, he would kill somebody. <laughs> he would. There's no, it's I love it. I, that's one of my favorite things about that story. He'd run to the nearest person and kill him. Yeah. Just for all of the listeners to know, this was a popular request. A lot of people wanted to talk about Jonah Hex. So I submitted all the candidates to various feats of strength. And at the end, Mike and Tim were the only guys left standing. And rather than force them to fight to the death like I normally would, I magnanimously allowed them to share the review of the Jonah Hex origin. Tim, how did you first discover Jonah Hex? How and when, I should say? You know, it was was probably... um... 86, 87. I think the very first encounter I had with Jonah Hex was the the Jonah Hex Hex uh, secret or uh, not secret origins uh, who's who page. Sorry, got tripped up. So yeah, the uh, the Jonah Hex Hex uh, double page who's who entry was probably my very first encounter, and I'm looking at the guy with the scar on his face and thinking that's kind of that's kind of creepy and cool at the same time. Like I wanted to know more. So it was in my early days of collecting. I bought a lot of stuff at uh, flea markets, uh, yard sales, wherever I could, you know, get a handful of comics for a buck. Uh, I would do it, and I actually picked up uh, DC's Blue Ribbon Digest, Jonah Hex, and other Western Tales numbers two and three. Um, so that was the first time I actually got to really read the Jonah Hex stories, and I, I was instantly in love. It was everything I needed it to be. Awesome, Mike. What's your experience with the character? I think I saw the character a number of times before I actually noticed him. I mean, whenever you are a DC Comics fan, that you go through at least five of these, I don't know, temporal disaster crises where the universe is breaking apart. And you basically get these one panel cameos from everyone from like Anthro to the Legion of Superheroes to show that all of space and time is affected by the horrible thing that's happening. And Hex is always going to be in at least one of those panels. So I'd seen him there a bunch of times, didn't really register for whatever reason, because it wasn't really showcasing Hex so much as just showcasing the scale of the thing that was happening. And then I actually had a copy of the DC Heroes role-playing game, Mm -hmm. one of the many RPGs that I've bought over the years and never played. (laughs) But I'm just fascinated by all of the character stats and the artwork that was in them. That's actually the first place I saw Watchmen, too, was in that RPG book. Hex is one of them, and at that time he was in the stats as the post-apocalyptic Mad Max Hex, the one in sort of the leather biker outfit with the shoulder pads. And, I mean, he seemed weird. He kind of looked a little bit like Two-Face in uh, a motorcycle cop outfit, (laughs) but it never really registered. I never really kind of got it. I mean, I sort of knew who he was because he would occasionally appear in a time travel story. But it wasn't until I went into a comic book shop probably about eight years ago or so. And I just had extra money and I wanted to try new things. And they actually at this comic book shop had the latest issue of a book and all the issues behind it. And there was the Jimmy Palmiotti, Justin Gray series that was going at the time. So I just grabbed a bunch of random issues back there and I loved it. I love the character. I, I love the visceral nature of him. And it just led me to seeking out more stuff. You know, there isn't really a lot of, of hex trades that were available at that time, but I grabbed what I could and I've just been devouring ever since. And I just, I love this character. I heard Two Face in a motorcycle cop outfit and then <laughs> my brain just went off on a tangent. So 
<laughs> well, that's what he looked like he back did. in the 80s. No, he totally did. Uh, like you, the first time I read the character was the Jonah Hex series by Palmiotti and Gray. I don't know when I first heard about it. He was just always sort of there in the ether. Like I knew, I knew who the Western characters were, but they held zero appeal to me. Um, I, I've only sporadically ever been a fan of that genre in film or television, and as as comic book characters, they never really did much for me at the time. But I had heard an interview, a podcast interview that Jim, Jimmy Palmiotti was doing, and he was talking about the book, and I was like, you know, what, okay, I'll give this one a shot, and I tried it. And I was like, this character is really cool. I I, or I I liked the story, I liked the idea, um, but it. I, I still wasn't quite ready to bite down and like really embrace the character that much until I read this story in Secret Origins only about two years ago. This had a lot to do with how much I like the character, uh, but we can get into that a little bit later. Uh, folks, Jonah Hex first appeared in All-Star Western issue 10, which had a cover date of February 1972. It actually would have hit stands in December of 71, according to Mike's Amazing World of Comics. Created by writer John Albano, artist Tony Duzaniga, and editor Joe Orlando, the character stayed with the series when it was renamed Weird Western Tales with issue 12. Over the next five years, he appeared in all but one issue of Weird Western Tales, and his feature frequently graced the cover of the comic. By issue 18, Jonah Hex's name dominated the covers. With issue 22 in 1974, Michael Fleischer took over the scripting of Jonah Hex's stories and would continue to write the character for more than a decade. After Weird Western Tales number 38, Jonah Hex spun off into his own self-titled book beginning late in 1976. The new series kicked off with stories by Fleischer and art by Jose Luis Garcia Lopez, praised be his name. While Hex would occasionally appear in other DC comics like Justice League of America, Swamp Thing, and DC Special Series, his solo book lasted a pretty astounding 92 issues and was immediately followed up by a new book called Hex that put the titular character in a post-apocalyptic setting. That series lasted 18 issues. This story in Secret Origins, which came out in September of 1987, was Jonah Hex's only post-crisis on Infinite Earth's appearance for a long time. But in 2006, a new Jonah Hex book began, written by Justin Gray and Jimmy Palmiotti. That series ran for an equally astounding, for its time, 70 issues, and only stopped because the New 52 reboot renamed the book All-Star Western in 2011. That series lasted until October of 2014. Guys... Jonah Hex saw regular publishing for 15 years in the 70s and 80s, at a time when Western characters struggled to find a foothold in comics. And he appeared regularly over the last eight or nine years at a time when it's almost laughable to imagine DC or Marvel publishing a non-superhero comic. What is it about Jonah Hex that has made him so popular he doesn't fade into obscurity with the other Western genre characters? I mean, he had a movie a couple years ago. What is it about this guy that makes him last? I think it's he's a survivor. He's uh, gritty. He's fun, and he's just a nasty son of a bitch. Um, I say the reason I like Jonah Hex is the same reason I like Conan. Is as much as I love characters like Batman and Superman who have these strict moral codes, and no matter how awful a Batman villain is, and some of them are really, really awful, you know Batman will never kill them. You know he's never going to cross that line. And with Hex, he crosses it all the time. I mean. <laughs> He loves to cross that line. It's, it's the one thing that he is a complete genius as, which is 
murdering these horrible, horrible people in just nasty and unusual ways. I mean, Batman would never kick a guy off a cliff or throw him in a lime pit or force him <laughs> at gunpoint to drink out of a spittoon or kick an old lady holding him at gunpoint, you know, her wheelchair off a cliff. I mean, that's the stuff he does. There's a lot of just like, oh my God, I can't believe he did that moments. And I think that's what makes him last in a genre that is pretty much, hasn't been a major force in comic books since the 50s. He's kind of like the Punisher of the Old West. Mm-hmm. Yes, yeah. he very <laughs> that's much exactly is. That's, it. Yeah, he does. He does have a code. It's a code all his own. Like Batman has that moral code, but but Hex has his his. I'm not going to do it unless there's money involved, kind of thing, or unless I feel really strongly about what's going on. <laughs> yeah, he's not going to give you a nice cuddly feeling. He's not going to pat no. you on the head and tell you it's okay. And even in his very first story, a kid comes up to him with that, you know, say it ain't so Joe moment, you know, like in a Coke commercial. But instead of, you know, smiling and showing he's not so bad, he like knocks the kid on his ass. It's <laughs> like, wow, that guy's mean. And But you know that deep down he's good. He doesn't want to get credit for it. And I think it just comes down to a character who kind of wants people to hate him is I think he hates himself a lot, and he kind of wants the world to punish him. It's, that's the thing I think is kind of fascinating. It's the same reason yeah. I think he continually wears a Confederate uniform years after the war, that he deserted because he didn't believe in the cause, because he hated what it was and wanted the way of life that he was fighting for to die. Why would he continue to wear that uniform? I think it's like kind of the same thing as V for Vendetta, you know, dressing in the, the uh, Guy Fox outfit. Mm-hmm. Is, you know, I'm dressing like the bad guy. I'm a scary looking guy. I want you to hate me. And I'm not going to give you a moment where I'm going to, I'm going to do the nice thing and you're going to have the nice outcome, but you're not going to like me for it. Right. He's embracing the sin. He's embracing his himself as a sinner, as, as the villain, as the person you should hate. It's a way of keeping him himself detached from people. It's a way of like sort of shunning connections and making sure that nobody will expect anything of him. If nobody likes him. Yeah, and it's, I think it's a way of him punishing himself for bad mm-hmm. decisions because aside from him killing people, he is bad at everything else. <laughs> he can hunt you down and kill you, but every single time he's tried to have like a marriage or be a parent or to live an ordinary life or quit being a bounty hunter, it always falls apart. He just doesn't know how to do anything else. And I always thought one of the neat little things, this is actually brought up to by my, one of my panelists, uh, Paul Rue, is that both of Jonah's names, Jonah and Hex, both mean bad luck. <laughs> that the name Jonah, oh. obviously from the Bible, yeah. is used as sort of a bad luck omen by sailors. And his last name Hex just means another word curse. for curse. Yeah. <laughs> so, point. I mean, that's what he is. Just yeah. bad luck, bad decisions, and him just punishing himself and wanting other people to punish him too. And he's just kind of caught in this life that he probably doesn't enjoy that much, but he's good at it, and he probably gets sort of a visceral feeling from it that... He's probably not proud of, but he enjoys the hell out of it. He kills people in too many unique ways to hate doing it. <laughs> it's almost surprising when he doesn't kill somebody. It's kind of oh god. It it, it, it kind of like it makes me suspicious. Wait, wait, <laughs> wait a minute. He's showing well, like a shred of compassion for this character. This this can't this this won't end well for anybody. Yeah, there's little moments where he has that that thing at the end. There's like a story during the Palmiati Gray Run where. He's just been a complete bastard this whole time, and the sheriff just finally has enough and pulls a gun on him mm-hmm. as Hex is riding off. And you see Hex holding – he's not even turning around to face the guy. That's how sure he is that he can just kill this guy. Mm-hmm. 
And he just says, listen, some folks just don't know when they have it good. You've got a nice wife. You've got a house, more money and food that you need. If you want to give that life up for the one that comes after, I'll trade it for you. But you should know when you should quit. And the guy lowers his gun. Hex just rides off. <laughs> he gave him that chance. I know how this is going to end. You should be happy with what you got. Well, I think part of the appeal, I mean, we just talked about it a little bit, but part of the appeal, I think, is that Confederate outfit, but not just the outfit, the scar. It's it's the visual. It's that gritty, grimy, lost soldier kind of kind of feel that, that makes him almost iconic. I mean, that, that scar, to me, is almost the equivalent of Captain Hook's hook. It, it, it's what defines him as a character. If you see him, even in the post-apocalyptic outfit, you see a guy in a post-apocalyptic outfit, you you want to say Mad Max. But when you see that scar, it's instant. It's Jonah Hex. And there's no doubt in your mind that that's who it is. Because nobody else has a scar like that. No. Like, I, have never seen, I have never seen another face like this. And, of course, like reading comics in the 90s, every character had a scar over his eye. Every, every yeah. character had part of his face disfigured, but nobody looked like this with that that shredded, burnt piece of flesh that like connects his cheek yeah. to his lower lip. Oh. It's like, how does that even happen? Like, like, oh man, I, you just see that, and you're right. It's just as, in fact, it's more pronounced than the than the outfit than the Confederate outfit. You just see yeah. the face, and nobody else looks like that. It is just it's such like- a defining characteristic. It's hideous. I mean, you look at him, and it's cute to have the little scar that goes through your eyebrow because it's like, ooh, he's a tough guy, but it's kind of sexy. But this guy's face is melted on the side to the point that his teeth are kind of visible through a hole in his cheek. And like you said, there's that (laughs) hanging bit of flesh that connects through his mouth that he probably can't eat normally. Mm -hmm. And he probably has booze that comes out of the side of his face (laughs) when he's drinking. And his eye is like constantly bulging out because it looks like his bottom eyelid probably melted. Yeah, you think if he fell off his horse, like the eye would just pop out of the socket. Oh, it's it's hideous. There's no getting around it that you can't... This guy cannot go undercover. There's <laughs> there's no one that doesn't know who he is, even if he wasn't wearing the uniform. So yeah. he might as well wear it. You know what the uniform kind of reminds me of in a weird way? You guys ever see uh, Quentin Tarantino's Inglorious Bastards? Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Uh, every time that Brad Pitt and the Bastards would capture a Nazi soldier, they would interrogate him, get information, and they'd always want to let one of them go, one that they didn't scalp, so that they could tell other people about them, because they're just kind of creating an atmosphere of fear for the Nazis. And he would always question that last one, and he'd ask him one question. When you get home, after this is all over, you going to take that uniform off? And the guy would, yes, 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 I'll tell them exactly what they want to hear. He's like, see, I don't like that. I like to know my Nazis when I see them. (laughs) (laughs) So how about I give you something you can't take off? And that's when he would carve the swastika on their head. Hex is the guy who didn't take his uniform off because I think it's like he wears all of his shame on the outside. And the the scar is just part of that. Right. There's nothing nothing subtle about him. Everything is on the surface. Yeah. And it's like he's going to rub it in your face and make you uncomfortable. It's like you hire him because he's the best, but you're not going to be his pal. I, I remember as a kid, not it. It was that that visual. I just I found myself almost obsessed with the visual. I would doodle pictures in in my notebooks at school of Jonah Hex with the scar on his face. I even uh, at one point had read uh, as a kid the Indian in the cupboard, and mm-hmm. and went oh, yeah. and, f- 
and went and found a little a little plastic cowboy and <laughs> heated up the uh, the pointy end of my <laughs> compass and stabbed it into the side of his face and then painted the figure so it looked like Jonah Hex. Like, that's I'm going to put this somewhere, and I'm going to have a little live Jonah Hex running around my bedroom at night. And then I kind of thought twice about it. Do I really want that kind of thing to happen? I, was, I guess a I was of, pretty a lot imaginative. Of toys. <laughs> I was going to say, this podcast took a dark return earlier than I expected it to. Oh, that's the last thing I want coming to life in my bedroom when I go to sleep. <laughs> All right. Well, on that note, folks, we are going to take a quick promotional break. But when we come back, the secret origin of Jonah Hex. Hey, Jeff. Hey, Mike, I'm trailing. Man, it sure is great to be back to FCTC after such a long time. Yes, it is, and we've been away so long. Yeah, but real life... And, uh, you, you know what? I, I just I just can't do this. Can't do what? We have taken more breaks from this show than my wife has had in her entire life. I mean, we can talk about real life getting in the way. Which it has. But it's it's just not fair. So we're not going to joke around, and we're going to simply say that for the moment, we're back, and there's a lot of neat stuff to talk about. Like Season 2 of Lois and Clark. And the death of Clark Kent. And the launch of Superman the Man of Tomorrow. And the return of Lex Luthor. And the trial of Superman. And Underworld Unleashed. <laughs> the show can still be found at the Superman homepage, as well as at the Fortress of Bailytude. And we're still part of the Superman Podcast Network. So From Crisis to Crisis is back. For now. And it will still come out on Thursdays. Most week at www.fortressofbailey2.com, www.supermanhomepage.com, or www.supermanpodcastnetwork.com. There's a man... Going round, taking names And he decides who to free and who to blame Everybody won't be treated all the same There'll be a golden ladder reaching down When the man comes around The hairs on your arm will stand up at the terror in each sip and in each sup. Will you partake of that last offered cup or disappear into the potter's ground when the man comes around? Hear the trumpets, hear the pipers, 100 million angels singing. Multitudes are marching to the big kettle drum Voices calling, voices crying Some are born and some are dying It's Alpha and Omega's kingdom come Secret Origins 21 was cover dated December 1987, but according to Mike's Amazing World of Comics, the issue went on sale September 8th that year. Yes, 28 years ago to the day we're recording this episode. September 8th, folks. How crazy is that?
The cover to this issue features Jonah Hex and Black Condor and was drawn by Jose Luis Garcia Lopez, praised be his name. We'll start with you, Mike. What do you think of the cover? Oh, I, I wish Jonah Hex was a bigger part of it, but that's just my personal bias. I like that he's kind of hovering in the air with his horse, kind of like Mufasa in The Lion King. <laughs> it makes me think, like, Black, Black Condor can't see him or he wouldn't be smiling on that cover. <laughs> He's kind of blissfully kind of floating by, and it's like, you look at Hex, he's almost making eye contact with the back of Condor's head going, oh, I could hit him. <laughs> it's, so, yeah, I, I, it's kind of weird because the, the connect between these two people isn't really apparent, except the backdrop at the bottom with, you know, the Condors and the, the sort of uh, southwestern thing works for both of them, and that's the only real connection I can see is that they can share a sky and they can share a backdrop, so... I right. guess that works, but the tone of both of them is just really, really discordant. Yeah. Like, uh, the, again, like the vultures and the idea of mountains, even though that setting is not right for the Black Condor story, but it's weird because Jose Luis Garcia Lopez, praise be his name, had a history drawing Jonah Hex, but it seems like with this cover, he really wanted to draw Black Condor. Like, oh, <laughs> this, yeah. is, this is Black Condor's cover. It's going to be his moment in the sun to shine. And Jonah Hex is kind of like an afterthought, and I wish this one would have been reimagined. Uh, I, I wish Hex would have been more prominent on the cover. Uh, I wish Black Condor was just in a tiny circle at the bottom, <laughs> personally. <laughs> <But>. <laughs> I guess I just, a part of it is I never really had a connection to the character of Black Condor, but I guess it's the tone of both of the stories, but the looks on both of their faces, <laughs> and the fact that they're completely different characters. I mean, if he was sharing a book with, say, Scalp Hunter or even Bat Lash, that Bat Lash has a completely different tone to his stories. He's kind of a, I don't know, he's kind of a Brett Maverick type. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, mm-hmm. he's, a, he's a charming kind of guy who talks his way out of situations. He's a card player. Him and Hex share a uh, setting, and that's a good way. And the contrast could actually be part of the cover then. But it feels kind of like they didn't, they wanted to do stories about both these guys they didn't really fit with anyone else, so they just kind of got thrown into this issue. I can't help but if these guys ever crossed over, I think Hex would shoot him just because he didn't <laughs> like his outfit. Oh, yeah. It's, it's, it's a weird combo. I, I, I'm at a loss to understand uh, why exactly this, this combination was made. I, I mean, Roy Thomas, when he was doing these, he was he was really pushing for the Golden Age characters, the characters under his purview that he was interested in. As, as often as possible, he was trying to do these stories chronologically based on when the character first appeared. So Black Condor's first appearance would have fallen at some point in this, uh, you know, after Uncle Sam and these other characters. Why the other editors decided, you know what, we'll also put Jonah Hex in this, in this issue – I don't know what the rush was for that because he really wasn't appearing anywhere else. I don't know. See, I, I kind of see the expression on Hex's face as, as a like black condor just farted. <laughs> it, it's kind of like that. What? What the hell? What was that? You know, why is? Why are you even there? Why are you in front of me? Yeah, he seems offended that he's there. <laughs> he does. It's just like, oh, who's this clown? Why is he dressed like that? It's like, what's he doing on my cover? Okay, but in fairness, as we've described, based on the nature of his his deformity, he always looks offended. (laughs) True, true. Okay, Tim, would you mind telling our listeners the secret origin of Jonah Hex as told in the story? I would be happy to. The uh, secret origin of Jonah Hex, uh, written by Michael Fleischer, uh, with art by Gray Morrow. 
Uh, starts out at the Frontier City Amusement Park in Wyoming, uh, where we find a scantily clad woman in high heels being chased by thugs. Uh, when her heel breaks, she tumbles into a gaudily dressed cowboy figure knocking it over, and we suddenly discover we're on a movie set. Uh, when the crew checks on the fallen statue, they find that its head has been severed and its spine is exposed. It's not a statue, it's Jonah Hex. The next thing we know, a Mr. or a rather Professor Lawrence is being contacted by a Mr. Kastner. Uh, Lawrence is an expert on Hex, and they need verification that that statue is really him. Right off the bat, he confirms that the hideous rhinestone-studded costume is the one that his stuffed corpse was displayed in for L.B. Farnham's spectacular Wild West Review, uh, a story that took place in the Jonah Hex Spectacular. It seems that Kastner represents a party who's interested in purchasing the body. The only problem is an old Native American woman has come forward claiming to be Hex's common-law wife. So Professor Lawrence heads off to meet her to verify her claim. Uh, meanwhile, in Illinois, Mr. Llewellyn, who looks kind of Boris Karloffy in some of the panels, uh, shows off his Western memorabilia and Jonah Hex collection to some Miami Vice-looking thugs. <laughs> He explains to them that he wants Hex's body no matter what it takes. Uh, back on the Gray Eagle Reservation in Wyoming, the professor meets with Tallbird, Hex's ex. Uh, after speaking with her, he has no doubt that she's legit, but he does ask her about Hex's disappearance in 1875. All she says is, he told me he had been vouchsafed a visit to a strange new world, but he would not reveal more than that, and we never spoke of it again. So there's a little throwaway acknowledgement of uh, the Hex post-apocalyptic stories. Mm -hmm. uh, she then goes into his actual origin. Hex was the son of an abusive, drunken father who one day is actually pleasant surprised that his dad remembered his birthday and gave him a rifle. Uh, that night, though, when his mom comes home later than expected, his dad loses his, uh, his mind. Uh, she was out picking up supplies, picking up a birthday present for Jonah, which dad interprets as code for sleeping around and starts smacking her. Then smashes a bottle and starts to come at her. When Jonah tries to protect her, he gets beat down for his trouble. Tallbird stops the story there. She's tired, but promises she'll continue the story the next day. So Lawrence heads back to his hotel only to get a beat down of his own. The Miami Vice thugs uh, want to make sure that he convinces the engine dame to sign over the rights of the body to them the next day we learn that Tallbird actually persuaded lawrence not to report the thugs to the authorities we will not need the police she says then at the amusement park by jonah's body she continues her tale over the years hex became a great warrior fought the war of brother against brother later slayed his apache blood brother no tante and was then branded with a red-hot tomahawk by Notante's crew with the mark of the demon. He drank, became a loner, and one day, in a drunken haze, gunned a man down he saw fighting with a woman. The man, he believed for a brief moment, was his father. The man, in fact, was mad dog Lucas McGill, and he had a bounty on his head. The sheriff offered Hex a reward, but he didn't take it this time. The story is then interrupted by Llewellyn and his thugs, Crockett and Tubbs. <laughs> Tolbert refuses to sign away Jonah's body, even when Llewellyn threatens to kill her himself. Then suddenly, boom. Llewellyn is shot by Hex's corpse. The professor gets the jump on the thugs, holds them there until the police arrive, and Tolbert and Lawrence will have to go down to the station for some questioning, but by tomorrow, Jonah Hex will be out of the amusement park forever. 
And thus ends the secret origin of Jonah Hex. Yes. Mike, your thoughts on the story? I think it's pretty unorthodox, but it makes a lot of sense when you actually think about it, because most of the secret origin stories are going to retell or rehash or refocus a lot of these different versions of this origin with a character like, say, Batman that you've seen over the years. You're going to see kind of an amalgam of all the different ones, pulling it into sort of a modern retelling that you're going to see Batman's parents get gunned down. You're going to see him sitting in his study when the bat flies through the window. All those notes are going to be hit. But that's not what Michael Fleischer did here. And I think the reason that he chose to take a different route was all of those stories equivalents with Hex, how he got the tomahawk scar, uh, his uh, actual battles and experiences in the Civil War. He's, he actually wrote those stories himself, so he wouldn't actually be adapting anything that he didn't already write. Mm-hmm. Uh, even though there were probably only 10 issues about Jonah Hex, 10 stories that were actually told before he took over as writer, all the major life events, including Hex's in-continuity death, that was all Fleischer. So I gather that he didn't want to uh, tell those stories over again, given that he was the one who told them in the first place. So I wonder if this is necessarily the best entry point, which is what I assume the Secret Origin series was all about, is kind of a tour guide uh, showing you around the DC universe and especially a lot of their characters that you might not necessarily know. I don't know if this is a great entry point for Hex, but it really serves well as a last issue because I think at this point the Hex miniseries, it wasn't intended to be, but it became because it got canceled, really kind of just ended. It didn't explain uh, what happened to Hex. It never showed how he got back to the Old West from the post-apocalypse. It just kind of stopped. And I think this gave Michael Fleischer an opportunity to have an epilogue mm-hmm. to the character and sort of send him off. And it feels like that's what we really got here. A great story for folks like me who've already been really familiar with him, but not necessarily a, a good point to see Hex sort of in his uh, usual classic status quo as a bounty hunter. Right, yeah. And and you're right. Yeah, a lot of Secret Origins stories were used to launch a new series, like Blue Beetle and Suicide Squad or Doom Patrol. You know, part of the emphasis for putting those secret origins out was to promote a new book that was coming out within a month or a couple weeks. And this one doesn't do that. This one sort of functions, just like you said, as an epilogue, uh, because his stories had been told and there wasn't anything coming out of this. Uh, and you're right, and I think part of it, I think Fleischer was like, I've I've told this origin enough. I've told these stories. I want to tell something different, and that's kind of the approach that Jerry Conway took when he did the secret origin of Firestorm back in issue four, because Conway had been writing Firestorm for five years, and he had told his origin, you know, three or four times already, just within that span. That by the time he got to that origin, he's like, okay, I'm going to show you the origin from somebody else's perspective that you haven't seen yet, and. Yeah, yeah, I think that's kind of what Fleischer was approaching. He's like, well, I can give you the backstory of this character within the context of telling you his sort of his last kill, his last act as a bounty hunter, the last time he fires his gun. To both of your points, the um, yeah, the uh, the actual origin between the story about the drunken father, the story about him killing the drunken man, and even Tallbird's recap of his fighting in the Civil War, getting the scar, that's 
that's all essentially what three, maybe four pages of of the entire story. And it doesn't start until page nine. Yeah, like when this story yeah. is going, it's not until page nine that we get the first semblance of Hex as a kid. Right, right. So it it really is. It it's kind of it's kind of a nice bookend to to everything that Fleischer had done before. It kind of closes it out, uh, acknowledges what has happened before, and and puts a little cherry on top and sends you on your way. I just looked it up. Hex doesn't actually appear in his recognizable form until the 15th page. <laughs> that you actually see him not as a child, not as a corpse, in his wow. regular uniform doing stuff. And that's that montage page. Right. Wow. And that's page 15 out of 19. It was only a 19-page yeah. story. So. Uh, Mike, you were saying that this didn't really function the same way those other stories did. It, it was an epilogue. It was sort of a last chapter. The thing, yeah. the thing is, though... As soon as I finished this story, I wanted to read a whole lot more of Jonah Hex. Like, I didn't notice the first time I read this that I wasn't hearing his story until halfway through the story. Like, I was so thoroughly engrossed in this world and these these supporting characters that I knew nothing about. But just like, because he made it apparent that whoever this guy was, this mysterious Jonah Hex, was really important. That so many people wanted to get their hands on just his dead body. That I was so I I was totally captivated. I was like, I need to read more about this. Like even throwaway lines about like Scalp Hunter. I was like, I want to read more about Scalp Hunter now. <laughs> and I told you guys that I never cared about the Western heroes like back when I was growing up. Like that just they didn't appeal to me. But after reading the story, I was like, I want to get like the showcase presents Batlash now. Like where where can I get all yeah. these all these characters? Yeah, it's it's great. And I think that one of the things because this is of course the signature writer for Jonah Hex, Michael Fleischer. Mm-hmm is that the character of Jonah Hex is present in the story, even if he isn't physically present, that everyone's always talking about him, everyone's always talking about his legacy and talking about his experiences. And one of the things that really jumped out at me was it mentioned he had 336 kills during confirmed kills. That's right. That's like Jason Voorhees numbers. (laughs) That is insane. That is a lot of people. And even after reading a bunch of his stories, it still feels a little low. Given the fact that Fleischer was doing this and he wrote the character for like 10 or 11 years, I wonder if he actually did the math himself. I wonder if he was counting it up. If it was Roy Thomas, I would say definitely yes. (laughs) (laughs) He would have counted everyone. Oh, he probably would have shown you his his work too. (laughs) Oh, man. I I love the the little mention actually having him intersect with real life history. L.B. Farnham's Weld West show. Mm Mm-hmm. That was a real-life historical figure, and L.B. Farnham was actually a character on the HBO series Deadwood. I, th- no, I thought that was, that was E.B. E. Farnham. E.B. Farnham. Was it E.B.? Oh, they def- yeah. they've got to be related. They've, there's got to be. I guess I read that wrong. But mm-hmm. that's. But they do mention uh, – actually, actually, I can bounce back from that. Uh, they do mention <laughs> Deadwood a little bit because they mention yep. the hand that Bill, uh, Bill Hickok had when yes. he was shot. The dead man's hand, the aces over eights. Yeah, yeah. When he, and they, yeah, they, yeah so, they, they credit his murderer too, Jack McCall. So. Yeah, I just, I love it. I I really love the sense of you know creating a, a world because Hex is always kind of an odd one that he doesn't intersect with the DC universe that often. He'll intersect sometimes with other you know Western characters in the DC universe, but it's unless you know Green Lantern shows up in a time machine, they're not going to meet. <laughs> so you kind of have to create a world sort of around him, and you can actually have him interact with a lot of historical figures. And I thought little things like that are the stuff that I think really give it a sense of, of place. That it feels like he's not just the world is 
you know, everything within his line of sight, it's everything around him. It's like there's a living, breathing world whether Hex is there or not. Mm-hmm. Did uh, spe- Speaking of history, did either of you guys pick up on the real story that this seems to be loosely based on? No. There is a uh, – probably going back to my dark childhood, you know, making little uh, Jonah Hex Indian in the cupboard toys. Um <laughs> So there was a there there was a, an urban legend, but it was confirmed. There was a uh, a bank robber uh, named Elmer McCurdy, whose body was mummified and put on display in an Oklahoma funeral home. The body was then later sold to a traveling carnival, and eventually ended up in the Pike Amusement Zone in Long Beach, California. The body was later discovered as an actual body and not a Halloween prop when it was damaged while they were shooting the $6 million man in 1976. Holy shit. Oh, wow. That's amazing. I looked to see if there was any reference I could find that said Fleischer was influenced by this, but the the comparison is really creepy. He had to have known. Yeah. He he had to have been thinking about that. From what I was able to dig up, though, uh, during the shooting of the $6 million man episode, a prop man moved uh, what they thought was a wax figure – that was hanging from a gallows when the mannequin's arm broke off and a human bone and muscle tissue were visible. Um, oh, they, they reported oh. it to the police and the body was later positively ID'd as outlaw Elmer McCurdy. Wow. <laughs> that is, that is insane. Oh my God. Another little bit that I really liked uh, for anyone who's a hardcore tax fan is there's another artifact that's in this guy's collection that they don't actually draw attention to, which is his cane. And uh, during the Hex series back in the 70s... Yeah, Llewellyn's cane. They actually uh, highlighted in the art a couple times. That cane is Quentin Turnbull's cane. Really? If you look at Quentin Turnbull, when they introduce him as sort of Hex's arch nemesis, that he was this plantation owner that blamed Hex for the death of his son during the war. Mm-hmm. Right. He would try to orchestrate this elaborate conspiracy to frame Hex and have him murdered. And at first, you don't actually see Quentin Turnbull. You only see him like in a stagecoach, and you see his hands in the cane. So the cane was sort of this emblematic thing of him before you actually saw the character until they had the big reveal of his face, you know, because it's a comic book, and that's what you do. Mm-hmm. And... Huh. Um, so the cane he actually has is that of his arch nemesis, and I thought that was a really good touch. He might actually be wearing a similar suit too, because he has that sort of Colonel Sanders white suit on. Yeah. <laughs> and the, as Tim pointed out, the, the Boris Karloff expression is beautiful. Like Morrow's, <laughs> Gray Morrow's art in this is just phenomenal throughout, and just some of the touches that he puts on the faces, like Tall Bird and this Llewellyn guy. I was just, oh, I was I was devouring this, just loving every page. Oh, I love it. I think it's another thing, too, that I think we oftentimes don't realize is sort of a lost art with a lot of comic book writers and artists that mm-hmm. grew up learning how to do this stuff from comic books, which is how do you draw a badass character who isn't built like Batman or mm-hmm. built like, you know, Hawkman or somebody who's, you know, ripped, but you still make him look tough. I mean, you think of somebody like, say, Samuel L. Jackson or uh, Clint Eastwood. Both of these guys are badasses. But they're not built like Greek gods, but they still exude this sort of this sort of like tough guy attitude. None of the characters in this story are drawn to look like superhero characters. They look they they're straight out of like a crime comic. Yeah. And 
they still look menacing. Mm -hmm. You still, these bad guys showing up to beat up the college professor still look like they mean business. They still look like they could just beat the shit out of you. Mm -hmm. And there's never a moment where you think like, oh, that guy's a small fry. And I think I really love that they managed to exude that kind of menace with him because Hex is the same way. Hex is a really tough looking guy who isn't exactly rippling with muscles. And there's a number of artists, and Tony DeZanigas can do it. Joe Kubert can do it really well with Sergeant Rock, especially. That guy's ripped, but he's not Superman ripped. And uh, there's a, it's a there's real like a skill. sinewy leanness to their musculature. Like, it, it's not like the muscles upon muscles that, like, like a somebody like an Ed McGuinness would draw. There's like a sense of musculature that's like still lean and close to the bone where, where it's just, yeah, it's like wiry granite. Yeah. <laughs> it's I think just that, like this guy looked made out of leather. And I think that, that, uh, that probably comes from growing up in the depression where you didn't have fat people because everybody was starving. <laughs> <laughs> wow. Um, but going back to something that's, uh, you touched upon like th- this, this idea that the main character, the, what would be considered the star of this story, is a stuffed and mounted corpse throughout this story in this ridiculous costume, this ridiculous Wild West review. Like, not period authentic costume like you would imagine, but something, as you said, like Marty McFly wore in the beginning of Back to the Future 3 that he got like chased out of town and shot at for. And it kind of goes back to what we were saying about like Hex. Like, this is a character that's with the scar and the, the Confederate outfit, like you look at this guy and you just like, there's some sort of contrast. Like you look at that and you shouldn't root for that guy because everything about him looks like the villain of every other story you've read. And now exactly. you think about what his situation is in this. It's such an ignoble, embarrassing, like a humiliating end for a character of his reputation. But he's still scary. Like, how does, yeah. how does he do that? How does he manage to still be threatening and still somehow kill his enemy at the end of this, despite being dead? Yeah, he outdraws a living man. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I, so 337. We're going to yeah, say is his final numbers. <laughs> yeah. I, I really love this story because it's weird. And I think Michael Fleischer wanted to do a new story rather than rehash an old one. He's like, what's the weirdest thing I can do? to rehash this guy you know in the rearview mirror mm-hmm. and say well what's the what's the worst end i could give this guy and then still give him sort of the the last laugh yeah <laughs> we mentioned that the story is 19 pages i really wish it had been the full 22 because there were a few moments where i thought that the story could have breathed a little bit when professor lawrence is attacked by the Llewellyn's thugs um, when he's kind of jumped in his hotel room, I, I thought that that could have been slowed down a little bit more to give them more of a sense that they were threatening him. Because right after that, he's, we kind of leap back into Hex's origin abruptly. And that end with, I, I felt like there needed to be a little bit more of a fallout of the fact that the gun in Hex's hand went off. Right. Mm-hmm. And, and there's just no explanation. Uh, I, I just if we could have gotten just a few more pages in the story selfishly, I I would have loved that. Yeah, I think letting that last moment breathe, like oh my god, that gun was loaded, <laughs> and you know, I, but I would have built up to it a little bit more because you really only get that button primed once, mm-hmm. where Tallbird says that she's not afraid. Don't call the police. 
the spirit of Jonah Hex will protect us, I probably would have had them get threatened one or two more times with those extra pages mm -hmm. and have her just resolute. It's like, no, I'm not afraid. I'm not afraid this something will happen. Right. And uh, have it be really shocking, like, oh, my God, that is, you know, you know, really kind of build that moment up a little bit more. Mm -hmm. Would it have been too much to, to even hint that something else mysterious had happened with this stuffed corpse in the past, that it was cursed or someone thought it was haunted or, or throw in a, a little tease somewhere along the line so that you're reading it and going, is it going to happen now? Wait, is it going to happen now? Wait, is something going to happen? Like, it might have been too much. It might have been playing their hand too much. I guess the one thing about having it so compressed in these last two pages is there is no time to really think about the ambiguity. It's like, mm. okay, did the gun go off accidentally? Like, uh, how? When did the gun be in? Why was the gun in his hand? Why was it loaded? Was there a ghostly aspect to this? And it's just like you just don't have time to even ask those questions. Because it's yeah, so I like the ambiguity. I like having any supernatural intersection with Hex be mm -hmm. kind of vague. I, it's like a special treat. There was the Joe Lansdale, uh, Tim Truman miniseries they put out in the 90s from Vertigo with Hex mm -hmm. that had a lot of supernatural stuff. Uh, but for the most part, he would occasionally run into El Diablo. But for the most part, the supernatural and, and Hex didn't meet up a lot. But when they did, I kind of like that little sense of, wait, what? Make it a little bit, uh, like you said, the ambiguity of it. I don't want a specific answer to it. And I kind of want where the reader can sort of make their own choice about what happened. Because if you go too far in that direction, you can just say the specter took control of the dummy for a little while. Because it's the sort no. of thing he would have done. Because if you take Hex that. out of the story, I mean, almost everything in this story except for Hex could have been a Michael Fleischer Hex, uh, specter story. Including the thug showing up to threaten an old woman, so it's got those same kind of those same kind of goons that would have shown up. Except instead of the um, the college professor, it probably would have been you know Jim Corrigan, ghost cop, you know, showing up. <laughs> but uh, it has that kind of vibe to it, and I've always liked that about Michael Fleischer. He, it, it feels like a hex story, even if hex isn't there. Mm -hmm. On page eleven when we're getting the story of Hex when he's a kid and his, his dad is beating up his mom uh, right in the middle of the, the fourth and fifth panels. His father, and it's written so that he's basically hiccuping and his drunk, but he's like, had an old colored woman once tell me, don't never marry yourself no good-looking female. Here, better to marry a hick ugly one what's got a face like a mud fence. I can't help but thinking that like when he was coming up with this idea that Fleischer was listening to the Jimmy Soul song, If You Want to Be Happy for the Rest of Your Life, Never Make a Pretty Woman <laughs> oh. Your Wife. <laughs> and if you look at it, too, the fact that he's about to scar his wife's face mm -hmm. fits into the, the whole thing, is that he he's basically was planning to do to her what would eventually happen to his son. Mm -hmm. So I kind of like that little thing coming full circle. And uh, he sort of does the same thing that he always does. I mean, he's a child here, so he loses the fight, but he frequently throws himself into the line of, an innocent, weaker person about to get brutalized by a terrible person, and he'll take the hit for it. Right. He usually will refuse to accept uh, thanks for it, and he'll always get no thanks for it. And if they do, he'll make sure that they won't want to thank him. But there's always that sense that this is a guy that, despite his outward nastiness and just some of the horrible things that he does and says, he frequently throws himself in the way of, of bad people coming after innocent people. But... I don't think you can praise him too much for that. 
and that sense of nobility and that code because if we go back to within the story, the way that he get he starts his career as a bounty hunter, he's drunk, he sees a man beating up a woman, total strangers, and in his drunken stupor, he has this emotional tether that makes him think he's seeing his father attacking his mother again. And he That's straight true. up murders the man, thinking that he's killing his father. And just happens to be the fact that he's killing a notorious bank robber or something. So he's essentially pardoned and rewarded for doing this act. But he was not doing this as an agent of the law. He was not doing this as an agent of, of nobility or honor or mercy. He was getting revenge. He was killing somebody that he hated for 20 years. That's true. And yeah, it's I think that's why he threw the money away too. I mm-hmm. think it wasn't a noble moment. It wasn't no, I'm going to use this to build an orphanage. It wasn't <laughs> that at all. It was you know, you don't have to pay me to kill my old man. <laughs> like screw that. I do that. And that in day. his head, I mean, he didn't notice that it wasn't his dad until the guy was dead. Mm-hmm. And I think he just like I got the emotional closure I needed from murdering this guy. I don't need this cash, but next time I'm going to insist on a check. <laughs> <laughs> My last thought, just thinking about this story specifically, I think this is easily the best story that I've read in The Secret Origins up to this point. And maybe it's because it's a cheat, because it's not forcing a retelling of a, an origin story that we, that we all know so well, because this is an actual story. Buried within the story are what made Jonah Hex the man he is, but this is a story with real characters, real desires and conflicts and interests and everything, and it's it, the the format, the the structure and everything is different, but I got to the end of this thing and I was like, I want to read everything about this guy and this world and this whole thing. Like I just I was really, really impressed with this story in a way that I was not expecting. Absolutely. It it was a new issue of Jonah Hex, is what it was. It wasn't a, a catalog reading of, hey, here's why you should check out Jonah Hex. This is an idea of what he's been in the past. This was a whole new thing mm-hmm. rather than a rehashing of old things. And I think that's what makes it great. Yeah. When I was you know, prepping for this episode, you know, reading some of those other Palmiati and Gray more recent uh, Jonah Hex stories, but I happened to find one of the old ones in the uh, 50 cent bin. Uh, it was Jonah Hex issue 73. And it's the wheelchair bounty hunter. And it's the cover is him being pushed yes. off a cliff in a wheelchair because both of his legs are broken. Uh, and it's just a beautiful story. And I read it, and it's, it's again, it's written by Fleischer. The art is by Jose Luis Garcia Lopez, praise be his name. It's, it's just a fun story. And at the end of that, there's also a backup with El Diablo. And I was like, oh, now I want to read more El Diablo, too. It's just... <laughs> Oh man, I've just It's I've, that kind of cover that it makes you want to read it. Yeah, it's absolutely. like maybe if he's in a wheelchair it'll be a fair fight for everyone else. <laughs> and I think what makes this character sort of unique is covers like that mm-hmm. is that you would never see that cover for Batman. Right. You'd never see it. In a, and it, look at the very first issue of Jonah Hex, Jonah Hex number 1. He's just been spun off into his new book. And what do you do with a cover when you give a character a new book? It's like you basically do a poster. The first issue is always Showing what this character at their high point, what's the first issue of Jonah Hex have on it? He's beaten up and he's about to be dragged outside to be murdered. <laughs> it, it sets such a different tone. And you saw that in almost every cover they put out for him in the original series. It was just like, man, this guy's mean or man, this guy's screwed. Other recommended readings, other Jonah Hex stories that you guys would recommend, Tim? What are some of your favorite Hex stories? 
you know, I actually I came I came out of out of rereading the Secret Origin and getting ready for this by taking in a little bit of as many different things as I could. So I, I did rewatch the 2010 movie. I, I am very DC, sorry. I watched the DC Showcase short. I watched Batman the Animated Series uh, Showdown. I read some of the originals. I read some of the Palmiotti. I went back and reread uh, the Tim Truman, Joe Lansdale, uh, Two Gun Mojo. Um, even picked uh, some of the all-star westerns from the New 52. They, I, I don't think there's – I honestly don't think there's a bad Jonah Hex story. I think especially those one-and-dones from the original run and the Palmiotti Gray run, you can pick up almost any one of those and just have a blast reading it. They they are fun. I don't know that I could single out a specific one right now. Just any of them. I mean, the one and dones are so beautiful They're in their amazing. simplicity. Yeah, yeah. I I I can only bounce off of what Tim's saying there and just say that you take any character that's been around for multiple decades, and there are so many stories. Even if you're the biggest fan of that character, that are unreadable. That if you're a Spider-Man fan, I bet you you could name like 10 notorious stories that just drive you nuts. I can't do that with Hex. I really can't. I don't know if there's a bad era. There's a bad moment. There's stuff that at the absolute worst, I'm like, "Eh, that was pretty good. But the thing I love about Hex, especially in the last decade, is that he was in a series that was one of the most accessible books that DC was putting out that occasionally, very rarely, you'd get a two-parter. And I know around issue 50, there was like a five-parter. But that series was almost entirely done-in-one stories. And it was the only book coming out that I wouldn't say, okay, if you want to read this book, you have to go back three years and start here, or you have to start with volume one of the trade paperback. You could literally just say, pick the one that you think has the best cover. Pick the one that has the art that you like the best. And because they're working with a series of all these different artists, kind of like Sandman in a weird sort of way, that yeah. the story would be written to the strengths of the artist. Mm-hmm. It's like, well, this guy's really good at doing action, so we're going to do an action-based Jonah Hex story. We're going to do a character-based Jonah Hex story. And he's such an engaging character. Like you mentioned, Tim, all these places that he's appeared in like animated and live action. And creators love this guy. What character this obscure has appeared this many animated series? I can't think of anybody. He was in Brave and the Bold. He was Batman the Animated Series. People want to use him. There's something about him that people love him, and they want to use him, and I I get it. Yeah, he uh, he even had the – it was Brave and the Bold, Batman the Animated Series, even uh, Justice League Unlimited. Yes. uh, Was it Kronos? The the Kronos story? Yeah, yeah. They reference the post-apocalyptic stories in that one. They actually have it where Hex is the one that recognizes the Justice League as time travelers. And they're like, how do you know about time travel? He's like, lived an interesting life. <laughs> the, it's like little things like that. I love it. I, I discovered actually another kind of media that I didn't know existed. It came out around the time that the movie was coming out. And I think that's why they produced it. But he was in a series of motion comics that you yes. can find on iTunes. They were like the what when I don't know, there was like a 5-year period when like all these comic companies were really experimenting with this this media. Um but DC put out some motion comics that you can find these and it's it's like seven stories and some of them are adapted I think from the Gray Palmiotti or maybe not. I know I think the Lansdale story. There's like a five-part story. Yeah, to, um mm-hmm. I think I think it was Two Gun Mojo cuz Yeah, it was Two Gun La- Mojo. 
Lansdale and Truman did three miniseries. It was Two Gun Mojo, which was five issues. Right. Um, Shadows West was three issues, and then Riders of the Worm and such was another five issues. Yeah, so they adapted the five-part Two-Gun Mojo into five episodes, and then there were two other ancillary motion comics that they did. Um, and I was like, I was like, when did they do this? I like didn't even discover it, but I found out that you can actually, for free, you can find them on YouTube. Uh, so I watched them that way, and I was like, this is really cool. I can't believe that they did this. Um, yeah, actually, and, and, they just released all three of those miniseries in a trade called Jonah Hex Shadows West that came out like last year. So yeah, yeah. it's amazing how much of his stuff is still in print. I mean, it may not be as readily available, but it's all still on Amazon. All the mm-hmm. most of the Gray Palmiati run is there. Mm-hmm. The two volumes I've done of Showcase. Please, DC, give me volume three. Yes, and I have twenty three trade paperbacks of Jonah Hex that I own. <laughs> That's more than I own of Batman and. <laughs> The fact that I'm able to get that stuff and I've come this late to the party on this character means that everyone else can too. I would just grab the Grey Palmiotti one. I think that's a great place to start because you can really pretty much start with any trade in that series. Actually, the one that I would recommend, it was they did an original graphic novel. It wasn't like a trade paperback collection. It was a true graphic novel. It was one story. It was called No Way Back and they oh, did that's it. Great. They brought Tony Duzaniga yes. back and he did the art on that and I believe it was the last thing he did before he died because that book came out in 2010 and I think Dizanigo passed away in 2012. Um, but given that he created, he was the first artist on Jonah Hex, they brought him back and that was his last work. It's a gorgeous graphic novel and similar to this kind of secret origin, it, it delves a lot into Hex's past and we play up the themes about what happened to his mother after she left him. Uh, what happened to his father after she left, and all of these other things, and like his family relationships, and it's it's a great story. If you can find if if you're looking for any Jonah Hex story, I would start with that one because it's just a great exploration of the character. You will at once love him and hate him um, for much the same reasons. I have not seen the film Jonah Hex starring. Um, Josh, Josh Brolin. Josh, thank you. God, I couldn't think of it. I, I kept thinking Megan Fox, but God, no, I don't want to start off by saying the <laughs> film sorry, Megan Fox. Um, you could I, have said young Tommy Lee Jones. There you go. And, and made a Men in Black 3 reference. <laughs> um, I haven't seen it because I saw the previews for it and said they don't understand what makes this character special, or at least they, they just the spirit isn't right. Um, you, you don't make it look like steampunk future gothic western but maybe I'm with wrong. superpowers yeah tim I, it's that's a, oh it's worst it's the worst i will say this the first time i saw the movie i hated it i absolutely hated it and part of it i think was when i knew they were putting in that that little supernatural element my hopes then went to oh so they're going to adapt some of the the truman lansdale stuff like that's what i'm going to get and I'm I'm in like yeah, that's perfect. The the Truman Lansdale hex, the the Vertigo stories, absolutely love them. I as much as I love everything about Hex, I would almost point to those those stories as my favorite Hex stories. So when I knew there was going to be a supernatural element in the movie, I was thinking that's what I was getting, and it's not at all what I was getting. I hated it the first time. I sat down last week and rewatched it just <laughs> to be able to talk about it now. <laughs> and I didn't I didn't hate it as much as I did. 
at the the first viewing. I'm glad you um, said that because otherwise I would be have I would have to pay you. <laughs> no, 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 no. It it starts out promising. We get our flashbacks to to the Civil War. We get flashbacks to um, the explanation of the the scar on his face, which is different than the comic. Right, it has they didn't want to be racist, so they made white people scar him. Yes, um, Quentin, Quentin Turnbull, um, John Malkovich is actually responsible, and it starts out with him branding him with a QT for Quentin Turnbull. And then Hex goes back later and heats up the hatchet and burns that QT off of his own face, which kind of adds that extra little like, whoa, he's a badass. Mm -hmm. But then you get, you know, then it goes downhill with, you know, he can touch dead people and talk to them. He's got twin Gatling guns mounted on his horse that he hides under his coat. Um, And they just appear. There's the weird... Quentin Turnbull has has an atomic cannon thing going on, like oh, that it that hurts. Ele- it hurts. That element, that element, I'll give was was bad. To put it in perspective, it was better than Will Smith in the Wild Wild West, but it was not. I was about to make that comparison, <laughs> but it but it was not as good as the Lone Ranger okay. with Johnny with Johnny Depp. Which I was a big fan of the Lone Ranger. I, I may be oh, in the okay. minority, but but I did enjoy that. I didn't so, know if that was a backhanded compliment or not. I wasn't. <laughs> no, sure. no, I actually did enjoy the Lone Ranger. I was going to say, um, I think you're the only one who saw it because <laughs> I'm pretty sure that movie bombed horribly. <laughs> oh come on! Yeah, I, I think Hex I, did too. I saw it in the theater. I own the DVD. I, I've even got little. I, I haven't. I haven't seen it. I, <laughs> so I can't speak to its quality. I always hate it when I'm the only person who likes something. I, I know your pain, Tim. I'm the only person who seems to like Death to Smoochie. So, believe me, I know, man. I know. I, I wanted to like Death to Smoochie, but... <laughs> See, there we go. I'm alone. I'm just going to wander the earth as the only fan of that movie. I, I did see it in the theater, but I have no recollection of it. But the thing that I think... Oh, man, that John Hex movie. The only thing... Um, actually, no, I can't even say that. But the worst thing about it to me... Because I only made it about three minutes in, and I saw the trailer, so I saw the stuff I was missing too. It just—it wasn't Jonah Hex, but it became the same thing as like I've seen bad Batman movies, and it doesn't bother me because Batman's never going away. I don't have to fight to convince people that Batman is cool, if, even after Batman and Robin. But with something like say Howard the Duck or The League of Extraordinary Gentlemen, and now the Jonah Hex movie. I have this really, really cool comic book that now has this giant barrier to get people to try to try it. And they're like, oh, Jonah Hex, you mean that crappy movie? I'm like, no, I swear. I swear it's really good. And I just look like a crazy person. And it's that's the part I don't like about it, is it's made it so hard with so many good comics to give it a try. And I think even DC felt that burn. That's why with the reboot, they didn't just call it Jonah Hex. They called it All-Star Western. Because I think at that point, they just thought the name Jonah Hex was poison. Mm. And I think after a while, they realized it kind of wasn't. So Hex's name got bigger on the covers as the new 52 went on. But that movie really, really hurt that character's markability. It really did. You know, in in hindsight, as much as I would have liked to have seen a a big screen adaptation of the, the Lansdale Truman stuff, I think even adding that mystical element was probably a bad way to go. They should have gone straight bare bones western, kind of like the uh, the DC Showcase short. Mm-hmm. 
Exactly. Which if is they had the just... movie that I wanted to see. I think I think you get more authentic Jonah Hex from that 10-minute cartoon than you would get in, in the movie. Absolutely. Absolutely. The worst thing about it is it's not like it's hard to make a Jonah Hex movie really well because Hollywood has done it hundreds of times. And that it's essentially a spaghetti Western character, sort of an amoral bounty hunter who's kind of in it on his own, but has a code of justice. I mean, you could see a Jonah Hex movie in uh, for a few dollars more. You can mm-hmm. see it in Outlaw Josie Wales. There's so many times that they've gotten so close. They just didn't call it Jonah Hex. You know, it just it seems like that one last moment. But it's like they saw the producers at least saw comic book. And they're like, oh, so it's a superhero movie. Let's make it a cowboy superhero movie. And right from that point, that decision, it wasn't Jonah Hex to me. Hollywood has, they have struggled with Westerns a lot recently. I think Tarantino had uh, success with Django Unchained, and he's got his new one coming out this year. Um, but other than that, I mean, if you look at, I mean, e- even just uh, The Lone Ranger and everything, that that wasn't successful. And I, I don't know what the market is in film for Westerns. If I could have my like, I I wouldn't mind seeing Jonah Hex on the small screen, and even if it's not like on a, a network or a cable show, like if if DC could work out a deal with a Netflix or Hulu or some kind of streaming to do direct content, like Marvel is doing with their Daredevil and Luke Cage stuff, even if they could just do a five episode Jonah Hex series or a, or a six episode, and it doesn't have to be, you don't need five seasons of Jonah Hex. You don't need that much. I'm not that greedy. Just give me like five hours of Jonah Hex stuff on a small like screen something... on a television budget. It doesn't have to be anything greater than that because you can keep exactly. it trimmed down like Deadwood, even though Deadwood was mm. notorious for having a huge budget. But I'd like to see um, something kind of like uh, what they do with Sherlock, where with uh, the BBC Sherlock, there are three yeah. episodes in a yeah. season. And they're all like 90 minutes apiece. So you right, get three like really movies. good stories. Exactly. Absolutely. And it's like you do that with Hex. And then you take two years off and write some more really, really good stories. And do them kind of like the done ones or like yeah. expand the 10-minute one into uh, basically a short feature. You can do it. I mean, it can be really good. And I think what I would probably do with Hex in that sort of format is I would avoid doing any origin stuff for like the first season, maybe do those big three mini movies. Mm-hmm. Don't explain why he's wearing the uniform, but maybe make a reference to it. Like what's that all about? Or don't say anything about the scar. Remember he's lying in the cartoon. Got myself shaven. <laughs> I mean, just something like that. And then in season two, slowly start to put that stuff out, but sell him as a character first. Sell him as like, man, this guy's stories are good. Even if I don't know anything Aside from the fact that he's just a mean guy with a nasty scar who kills bad guys. Yeah. Tim, any last thoughts about Jonah Hex? It's a character that, that I have always enjoyed. I, I have loved Jonah Hex from, from that very first time looking at him in Who's Who. When I narrowed down my blog topic to Blue Beetle, the, the top three were Blue Beetle, Jonah Hex, and Lee Falk's Phantom. So it, it came down it came down to... Not flipping a coin, but very close to uh, to being instead of Court Industries, some sort of Jonah Hex blog. I, I gave serious consideration to that. So I love the character. I loved this story in in Secret Origins. I don't think there is a single piece of of, of literature, any of those Jonah Hex books, that you will pick up and be disappointed with. 
And Mike? I can only echo what Tim said. This is a great character who stands the test of time, and every one of his stories is enjoyable and worth reading in some way. I think you guys both nailed it. This It's an exceptional character. Before I get to your plugs, I do want to give a special shout-out, although it's much belated, uh, Scott Gardner from Two True Freaks used to do a podcast about Jonah Hex called Death and the Acrid Smell of Gunsmoke, which is just a glorious title <laughs> for a Jonah Hex podcast. Mm. Now, unfortunately, Scott only did about 12 episodes, and the most recent one is about four or five years ago. So maybe if you clap your hands and believe in fairies, he'll put out some new episodes. Otherwise, uh, I put it to somebody else in the listener or fan community. Somebody's got to start a new Jonah Hex blog or podcast. Tim should definitely consider that if you're not busy with it. <laughs> Uh, but getting into that, Tim, where can our listeners find you online in the podcast or blogosphere? Uh, podcast, I haven't, I haven't quite graduated to my own, uh, but I am making a couple appearances. I will be uh, appearing with Rob Kelly on the uh, Film and Water podcast. We're actually discussing the uh, death of Superman Lives. Uh, oh, so the that, John Schnepp one, the documentary. Yes, nice. Yeah, I really so that, want to see that. That'll be fun. It is a. It is. Amazing. <laughs> it's it's very eye-opening. But in addition to that, obviously, uh, my Blue Beetle blog, Cord Industries. So it's uh, cordindustries.blogspot.com. Uh, I'm also uh, a contributor at the Legion of Super Bloggers. Either of those spots are, are where you can find me more more regularly at Cord Industries, obviously. But I do make the occasional contribution over at the Legion of Super Bloggers as well. Mike, what about you? Where can people find you? Well, uh, primarily, I'm working on a podcast uh, panel show called Radio versus the Martians. And by the way, uh, Ryan, thank you for the, the more than generous plug you gave us the other week. And uh, basically, uh, we like to bill it as the McLaughlin Group for Nerds, where basically my friend Casey Doran and I get a bunch of our friends together, and we hash out a pop culture topic. We just did an episode on the TV series Twin Peaks. And uh, later this month, we're going to have a panel about the video game Bioshock and get into it there. I think we're going to have a lot of fun. Plus, we're uh, not this next month, but uh, in October, we're going to be launching a new sub podcast that's going to be on the same feed called Podcasta La Vista, baby, <laughs> which is Casey and I having our both unironic and completely ironic love of the cinematic works of statesmen and thespian Arnold Schwarzenegger. So I can't <laughs> wait to get started on that. I'm, I'm intrigued by the Bioshock episode because I, I might be in the minority that I did not enjoy playing that game. Now, I really liked Bioshock Infinite, uh, and the only oh. reason I played that one is because I, one of my best friends was on the writing staff of Bioshock Infinite. So I, sort of as a favor to him, I was like, okay, I'll give this one a shot. But I had a lot of problems with the original Bioshock, and I thought a lot of those were corrected by Infinite. Um, so, yeah, I'm looking forward to that episode. I'll, I'll be sure to chime in with my thoughts. And Please do. So, well, Mike Gillis, Tim Wallace, thank you both very much for your appearance on Secret Origins Podcast. It was great to talk to you guys. Thanks for having me back. Really enjoyed it. Oh, it was a blast. And don't go away, listeners, because after the break, we've got another secret origin coming up. Hey, hey, go! You like movies? Yeah, I love to talk, film, discuss, to critique. You want to see a film with me? 
Film and Water Podcast, a weekly show about movies old and new, hosted by obsessive movie nerd Rob Kelly and a rotating series of special guests. From sci-fi to horror, dramas to family films, comedies to adventure epics, we watch it all. The Film and Water Podcast is part of the Fire and Water family of podcasts. Available weekly at fireandwaterpodcast.blogspot.com and on iTunes and Stitcher. folks, back on episode 8, I had Diablo Frank as my guest on the Doll Man story, and he dropped a Justice League satellite-sized load of quality comics history on this podcast. And being the glutton for punishment that I am, I asked him back so we could talk about another quality hero, every bit as iconic and respectable as Doll Man. Of course, I'm talking about the Black Condor. First, thanks for coming back, Frank. I don't think anybody else was going to volunteer for the Black Condor, so... I do think that while technically the name quality is true when applied to Black Condor, I think as a qualitative judgment, it's a lot more dicey than with Dollman. Well, that brings me to my second point. Why do you want to talk about Black Condor? I, honestly, I, I think I'm just taking a hit. I really don't think there's anybody – here's the thing. I, I don't know if you're familiar with uh, Andrew Weiss uh, from Armageddon Time. Are you familiar with that blog? No. Okay, it's a great blog. I highly recommend it. It's a, it's a Boston-based uh, reviewer of, of really pop culture. He's great about going into like Time Magazine and Life Magazine, I mean, and, and looking at where the culture was at a particular point in time. And then he'll go into like music and comic books and just junk culture and see how that junk culture reflects the mindset of people at, at given points in time. He's a buddy of Chris Sims, and they've, they've done some work together. Anyway, he's got a feature on his blog called Nobody's Favorites. And basically it's about finding those characters. I think it was Mark Grunewald who said that every single combo character is somebody's favorite. And he takes joy in finding that character that absolutely nobody on the face of the earth chooses to have as their favorite. And I was really looking forward to reading his post on Black Panther. I mean Black Condor. I knew it was going to be there. It had to be because it's freaking Black Condor. And as it turned out, 
it was like nobody else's favorite, which is a little twist that he does uh-huh. on it. He likes to, well, it's like nobody but me likes this one particular character. And even in, in trying to summarize the appeal of Black Condor, basically what he came down to is he just really, really, really loved the Who's Who page by Jerry Ordway. <laughs> he just he felt like that that really exemplified the the joy of the of the golden age characters, the craziness, the zaniness, the the freedom, and even though the stories did not in any way hold up to the image that that who's who put into his mind, he still had that love for that character. I love the art of Lou Fine and Murphy Anderson. But there is no character in comic books that I can think of that anybody would know, like there's any kind of known quantity that has a worse origin story than Black Condor. And aside from the art, these are not the strongest stories and his usage in the DC universe since he was bought by it has been almost uniformly misguided and and wasted efforts by a lot of decent creators. And so I kind of see the Black Condor as this black hole in the DC universe, he is sort of like. Whereas I look at somebody like Dollman, I see the influence, and I see where you can still do interesting things with that character. Black Condor is a cool name that DC just needs to stop doing anything with because it's just a terrible concept. It's a terrible character, and again, like with Dollman, I think you probably take that name and turn it to a villain. You know, it's a Condor, so they eat corpses and stuff. So it's like some grizzly Jeff Johnsy type villain. Just do that and stop wasting everybody's time because nobody but Andrew Weiss cares about Black Condor. <laughs> yeah, I was actually going to bring up, I think, like every year, Cracked.com or something like BuzzFeed or whatever, they always have the, the you know the sites that put out lists just for clickbait. Every year they publish a list of the lamest, stupidest superheroes. And I feel like Black Condor is always on that list. Assuming it's not like limited to '90s X-Men characters, because that's as far back as the writer can remember or they've read. Um, but yeah, like every time I see like a list of lame heroes, it always comes back to Black Condor, and it's always because of the origin. And there's never this huge following that come up and try to defend him. It's like, no, he has a great costume. He does not have a great costume. It's a loud suit. Uh, he has he has this wonderful run by so and so. No, he doesn't. It's you like Lou Fine's artwork. I don't think that people who enjoy Black Condor bother to even read the stories. You're just flip through the pages, look at the Lou Fine originals, and then that's really it. And he's that guy they keep throwing in the Freedom Fighters, thinking that he's going to be their snake eyes, and it never happens. Just <laughs> because you got black in your name doesn't mean you're the cool one. <laughs> Well, they do sure keep trying. I have to point out, too, that the secret origin of the Black Condor is arguably the worst secret origin story of the 50-odd issues as well. Because of the exact problem you've stated and restated with regards to Roy Thomas, this is the single most plagiaristic secret origin of all time. Well, we're going to come back to that then. We're going to talk about that later. Uh, But before we get into the story, uh, the character's publication history, such as it is, Black Condor was another quality creation of Will Eisner and Lou Fine, if you define quality as that, he was published by quality, uh, debuting in the last feature of Crack Comics issue 1, cover dated May 1940. The Black Condor became the cover feature on issue 2 and would alternate covers with the clock until issue 20, when Black Condor became the regular cover feature until issue 26, he continued to appear in Crack Comics until issue 31 in 1943, and that is it for his Golden Age appearances. But 30 years later, Black Condor was brought back in the pages of Justice League of America issues 107 and 108. Alongside Uncle Sam and other quality comics characters that DC had acquired, Black Condor became a member of the Freedom Fighters, appearing in a book of the same name for 15 issues. 
In the 80s, Black Condor and the Freedom Fighters appeared in DC Comics Presents number 62, All-Star Squadron 31 through 35, and various issues of Crisis on Infinite Earths. In 1992, a new character took on the identity of Black Condor. This version starred in his own self-titled 12-issue series, and also became a member of Primal Force and the JLA, before being murdered by Sinestro during Infinite Crisis. After that, a third Black Condor appeared in the revived Freedom Fighters series of the late aughts. That's what I got for publication history. Is there anything that you need to add? I can, but I, I think instead of front-loading it, I'll, I'll put it toward the back end. Sounds good. Okay. Uh, as we'll get into the story, do you have any thoughts on the cover for this issue? Yeah, it's awesome. It's awesome. I mean, that, one of the things that takes the pressure off with this episode is that I know that we're being front-loaded with Jonah Hex. Jonah Hex is an awesome character. Everybody loves Jonah Hex. He's everybody's favorite. And he's drawn by Jose Luis Garcia Lopez. Praise be his name. I know you don't like saying that, but thank you. I don't typically, but on this cover, it works because it's an excellent Jonah Hex. Uh, the, the black condor is envisioned here is very along, much along the lines of that Jerry Ordway Uzu entry. He, he looks glorious. He looks like he's, he's just relishing the flight. He looks cool. It, it, it's totally misleading. <laughs> All right. So do you want to tell our lawyer? Uh, sorry, I was going to say, do you want to tell our lawyers? Do you want to tell our readers exactly well, why? The, the accusation I leveled earlier, I might need to talk to a lawyer. <laughs> uh, do you want to tell our reader or list, God, our readers, our listeners? Hey, Frank, tell some people the story of the black condor. So the secret origin of the black condor, the man who can fly like a bird. Oh my God. I, I don't even know where to start with this thing. So um, you've got these two white people in the middle of Mongolia, uh, one of them is Major Richard Gray. You've got his, in the original story, unnamed wife and their little dick. And uh, they've taken little dick on their expedition through Mongolia where they've got um, some uh, Muslim guides, which I don't understand because, again, Mongolia. Um, then they're attacked by these raiders, these Yaki raiders led by Ghali Khan, who, again, is of, of some vague almost indeterminate ethnicity. The only thing you know for sure is he's definitely not a white guy. For starters, he's Ghali Khan. But why Mongolia? Where You've got guys with turbans and they have sabers. It's like the, this, this thing is a hash of like white people and everybody else-ness. Um, so the archaeologist and his wife are attacked by these raiders. The archaeologist tells his wife to go hide behind some rocks and he'll fin these guys off. That's not working out. These Yaki Raiders are way better at killing people than uh, the group is at defending themselves. So the wife hides their baby behind some rocks and throws a rock at one of the men and takes a saber for her efforts. Uh, and then finally the leader is like, capture that, that, the lead white guy because I want to make sure to kill him in a particularly dynamic panel in the midst of actually already killing everybody else. So that just leaves little baby, little dick. So little dick is, is wandering around the desert on his own and he almost – he actually does fall off a cliff. So this giant black condor swoops in, grabs him mid, mid-fall, and takes him up to where she's got her little condor chicks. And she feeds this baby and, and takes it as her own because that's what condors are known for doing instead of like pecking the sweet, juicy eyeballs out of this kid's face once it landed. So the kid in this really bizarre, creepy panel where this, he's like Satan baby. He looks like the baby from the Dawn of the Dead remake. You know, like this is not a right kid. And he's like flapping his arms trying to fly like a bird. And apparently this guy managed to get to early adolescence just hanging out in these – like climbing on, around on these rocks and, and hanging out in this old nest. And I, presumably you have like generations of condors have come and gone this time, you know, over the course of this time. 
Rory Thomas makes a point of showing you every now and again this glowing rock so that you know, okay, this isn't totally him watching the birds and learning through their example how to fly unaided. He takes his first shot at it. It doesn't work out. He lands on his face, doesn't die. He's actually nursed by the, the vulture, even though it really looks like it's like picking this of his mouth <laughs> out. It just does not look right. Through trial and error, he eventually learns how to fly. This person of, of heavy muscle mass and dense bone and lacking in wings just flies around. And he just and he gets into battles with eagles and stuff. Um, I don't think there are eagles in Mongolia. There definitely are no condors on that continent either. He's just having these battles with birds, and one of them doesn't work out that great, and he falls to earth. And so he's found by a monk named Father Pierre. Okay, the guy's bald headed. He's wearing like some sort of Tibetan gear, but his name is Father Pierre, and he's in Mongolia. Geography was apparently not a thing back in the 1930s. That was like some alien concept to comic book writers apparently. They don't know. It's just like you're either in the U.S. or you're other because this is just – ah. anyway. So Father Pierre anglicizes Black Condor. He teaches them English. He civilizes them all within the span of a year. And then he gets killed by the exact same Yaki Raiders that killed his parents – because uh, God help us, if we, if it, it's almost like they pre Roy Thomas this origin, where they make sure everything is still connected, even though it makes no sense whatsoever. But the same Yaki guys kill Father Pierre, and so Black Condor finally swears revenge because he never knew his parents. I, 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 they bring up his name. I don't know how this guy's supposed to know his name. He was a baby in the middle of the desert. How would anybody know who this kid's supposed to be? But okay, Richard Gray Jr. So he goes after the Yaki Raiders. And they're like the worst stereotype. They're like, I kill, kill, kill. Take the gold and kill the fat pigs. It's like there's no subtlety to this whatsoever. And so in, in this version of the origin, Black Condor dons some sort of robe type things. Why? I don't know. He could let his schlong hang out. It wouldn't matter. It's, I guess he's civilized, so that's okay. He was wearing a loincloth even among the condors. So he had shame, I guess, from – Body dysmorphia related to being raised by frickin' birds. Um, so he attacks the Yaki Raiders and he, and he tears them up real good. I guess he learned how to fight human beings with firearms and swords by fighting birds. And uh, he finally catches up with lead evil guy and swoops down and picks him up high in the air and just drops him, which is awesome. That's so golden age, old school, you know, original gangster. Mm-hmm. And, and you always want the flying guy. This is one of the most frustrating things about Hawkman. You just want him to pick somebody up and drop him because he could totally do that. That's something you expo- of, of all the things you would expect a Hawkman to do. Just grab somebody and fly up and drop him and watch him splatter like a watermelon. You know, so Black Condor does that, and that's the advantage he has over uh, Hawkman, basically. And so after killing the, the lead Yaki Raider and avenging his parents and avenging Father Pierre, he's like, okay, I'm done with this Mongolia crap. I'm going to hop on a steamer to New York City. So I don't know why Father Pierre put all these dreams of New York City in this kid's head, but he goes to New York City, and then the last page is everything else that ever happened to this character. <laughs> He, he the, There's a senator who's killed because he won't vote the right way on a bill from some industrialist, and he just happens to look exactly like uh, Richard Gray Jr. So even though this guy was taught by Father Pierre in Mongolia, he totally managed to insinuate himself into the United States Senate as um, Senator – what was the guy's name? Uh, Tom – Thomas Wright. Tom Wright. 
Peter Thomas Wright. And not only that, he hooks up with the guy's ex-fiance. She not only never knows the difference, but if you read the original comics, she likes Black Condor better. There's no cultural issues whatsoever. This guy totally can fall in line with legislative procedure with no training whatsoever. And then he becomes a superhero and joins these bogus teams that people invented like the Freedom Fighters. So <laughs> such ends the origin of Black Condor. I am going to put this out there because I think we should discuss it. I fucking love this story. Okay, well, you should get on with that and tell us why you enjoy that story because I'm going to come in afterwards and just poo-poo all over it. I'm going to turn your good feelings into the carrion that vultures dine on. No, here's the thing. Every point you're going to make, I am going to agree with. This is such a mess. Everything you put out, nothing about this story makes any goddamn sense. I don't care. There's something about how crazy this is. I love it. It's and maybe it's just I like I like Tarzan. I like Mowgli from the Jungle Book. I like Namor and Aquaman. So I'm just I'm along the fact that yeah. So what? He grew up with birds and he can fly like a bird. It doesn't make any sense. I don't care. I like the idea. And Roy Thomas actually does something here that I have been asking for forever. Whereas even he admits he, he that. He could not make his mind, he could not justify that kind of origin. So he throws in this meteor in the first page, and he just kind of teases, it's like, okay, there was this meteor with some sort of radiation that was bathing this kid from from the time that he was a little boy. Maybe that had something to do with the fact that he can fly, maybe it mutated him. We're not saying that's absolutely the case, but if it helps you justify the story, okay. And I think that's just enough, and... And yes, like, oh, oh, it's so weird and racist, kind of like not in like, like any kind of cultural sensitivity. The fact that the mother chooses to protect her son or die with her husband and she chooses to die and leave her son on a rock in the well, middle I of the mountains. I do want to point out, though, that that is a retcon. Okay. So just to throw that out there, initially she hides the baby because she assumes that they're all going to die. So – it's awful. Why didn't she run? Why didn't she? Why wasn't her maternal instinct stronger? I, I honestly like, think that Roy Thomas was trying to give her agency. I think that's why he did that, is he didn't want her to just be cowering somewhere. So he wanted to give her an opportunity to be a hero and die immediately afterwards on the next panel. Because she actually dies before her husband. <laughs> and, 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 oh gosh, yeah. And yeah, as you pointed out, like, I, that was one of the first things I looked up. I was like, there are no condors in the Himalayan mountains. A condor is a kind of vulture. There are vultures in the Himalayas in Asia, but a condor is native to either like the Andes Mountains in South America or else like California. So I was like, the name doesn't even make sense. And oh yeah, the, like the birds, like this kid should not have survived like what looks like twenty years, but he does. And somehow he's got like this diaper that grows with him, so he's not just naked the whole time, but. I don't care. Something about the, there's just a sense of joy about this that I just make allowance. It, I'm the same thing as the the guy that you were talking about earlier, the the blogger. It's I, I might be the only other person who, and I'm not even saying I like Black Condor. I'm not a fan of this character. I just particularly like this story, even though it doesn't make sense. You're right. The last page. It's like Roy. Why did you include this page? Why did we need to know that he comes to New York and becomes a senator because he looks like him? But, but, but look. If you're going to talk about Black Condor and, and how insane Black Condor is, you have to throw that part in. You're, it, it needs to be like – that needs to be law. That is, that is, that is Condor law. 
Because how could you not? It's the only thing, the, the greatest appeal this character has is layering inanity upon inanity until it's <laughs> the sandwich of, of stupid, crazy nonsense that you either want to bite into or throw in the garbage. The village that they attack at the end is called Hindustan. <laughs> oh, I forgot that part. Yeah, that's It's called perfect. Hindustan. And and I'm sure there's a lot of Hindus in Mongolia, which, by the way, everybody's shouting for Allah, good and evil. And it's like they're 3% of the Mongolian population today is Muslim. But yeah, what the hell? Who cares? And, there are others. That's the important thing. And you brought up like how they kept like bringing back like the same character, this Gali Khan. Okay, he kills Black Condor's parents. He kills Father Pierre, which again, that was the same thing. I was like, why is there a Pierre in this place? But then the fact is... Condor kills him. Black Condor grabs Gallican and throws him to his death. But there is no like dramatic resolution because he has no way of knowing that this is the same guy who killed his parents twenty years ago. Right, right. Like, there I mean, there you, is you no play out the altruism that like no, he's just going after these this force of evil. But yeah, you don't have any any closure there. It's just and it's not a it's not the kind of death where it's not like he's tormented on the way down or anything like that. It's just like whoop blop. <laughs> there's no there's no closure here. There's no emotional catharsis here. None at all. <laughs> he's just he's he's a big old turd who got slapped around in the desert, you know? It's just look, it's uh, uh, this story does not give a good gall dang about your Robert McKee. It's <laughs> going to just do whatever it wants and steamroll over your sensibilities and you're going to like it or not. Period. <laughs> and that's why I do. That's I think that's the only reason why Oh, I had more fun reading this origin than I have probably 90% of the stories in this series so far. I think part of it is just about being punch drunk. It's just like <laughs> you've been slapped around by so many origins in a row. And three-hour-long shows is like you've, you've got to embrace the insanity at this point. Here's a character who does not give a <laughs> I love it. Okay, what were, what were some of your thoughts before I run out of breath? Oh God! I don't even know where to start with this character. I swear to God, you—it's. See, I'm, I'm, I'm. I as I've gotten older, the more I believe uh, that you go back to the originals. You go back to the guys who created Character X, Concept X, and you figure out what they were trying to do, and you you honor that. But the Black Condor, when you've got a character that even Roy Thomas is like, I've got to screw with this guy's origin at least a little bit. I got to fix this somehow. He just can't let it lie on the page. And this is Roy Thomas. For me, this would be the perfect character to reveal his entire origin as a sham. That he's actually a Soviet spy who was inserted through Mongolia. That this this it was one of those origins that's so crazy that you you, you just accepted it because you assumed that he was either a crazy person or you've been in the comic book world so long as a superhero that you buy it and he totally. He, they, they should totally be like the heel turn, the guy who betrays everybody and becomes the, the Crimson Condor, you know, something <laughs> like that. There's no way – like grade school children are going to be pointing out the holes in this story. You're like, like nobody on earth is going to buy this story. So it seems to me like you have to use that. But it's probably best to just – like you said, just just enjoy it for being the nonsense that it is. I guess you've got that whole Fletcher Hanks quality where you're just like just getting off in the gonzo and letting logic fall by the wayside. I just couldn't quite bring myself to do it though. I just – I like the Jungle Book, the Tarzan, and the Namor factor. It's a naked guy running around with nature who, that has adopted him. I think for some reason that appeals to me. I can't tell <laughs> me why. It's birds too. <laughs> I mean, seriously, it's like Aquaman's uh, post-crisis origin was also a ripoff of, of Tarzan. Mm-hmm. But at least I, I can buy porpoise. I can buy sea life embracing mankind more than I can buy freaking birds of prey. 
<laughs> the birds of prey. These are these are these are the eaters of the dead. These are like the birds that other birds think are are nasty. You know, it's like they, there's there's nothing less. Well, unless you're making a really horrible statement about humanity, but there's nothing less relatable than really a condor, you know, uh, even insects, something that we can yeah. laugh to. They have some kind of social structure, but these are just some guys that fly down and, and peck at carrion. It's what? He had to grow up on a diet of regurgitated worms and other horrible carrion found in the mountains. Like he, I, um, presumably, he had to have eaten other humans at some point. And, and he's, he's speaking. He's, he's like speaking in baby talk, telling the bird to give him food. Right, right. How is, how it's is like, this happening? I guess you just have to let it wash over you. Oh, and then you're right. Let's see where there's an image where he's basically, he falls, which should be his death. He splatters oh, on the which rock. Another retcon, by the way. I guess Thomas felt like you needed that little extra oomph, that, that adrenaline rush of a baby falling to their death. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah, yeah. Oh, but, when he, but when he's a boy, like when he falls and actually lands head first on the rocks, and, yeah, and yeah. he should be all by rights, he should by all rights be dead. And the condor just starts nursing him back to. We shouldn't even call it a condor because there's no way it is. It's just a vulture. <laughs> so, yeah, there's something. Oh, and uh, Will Wisner must have been part of like the Condor Anti Defamation League or something. There has to be some motivation for him to have so thoroughly embraced the freaking condor. Okay, so I've got to read when Father Pierre finds him on the top panel on page 12. I've got to read this just to hear this again. Come, lad, I will take you to my hut. You do not speak, but I believe I know why. Just as I have long lived the life of a hermit, you have lived among birds so long you have forgotten that you are a man. You must have a name. I will call you Condor, after the eagle's deadliest foe. Yes, Black Condor, for your hair is black and... I talk too much. We. Oui. <laughs> I, I don't know where to start with I, that. I meet a strange man who doesn't speak the same language as me. I'm just going to assume you were raised by a, some kind of animal. This is like, this is some sort of weird prejudicial racism depicted at another white guy by another white And And yeah, I'm just going to name you after a bird instead of like Jim. Well, yeah, not just that. I'm going to call you Black Condor because your hair is black. Because that's something that we do, generally speaking. I mean, if you're a ginger, maybe, because you have no soul, so we have to acknowledge that. But nobody's like, you have black hair in Mongolia, so that's something that really stands out from the population. What? Right. How about pale condor? You know, something yes. that anybody ever, again, small children are like, wait, black condor? Daddy, black condor? What? Right. Nobody's buying this. Oh, man. I mean, they, what you can point to anything and any panel and find there every single panel in this thing is hates logical <laughs> reasoning it it hates the left side of your brain it's just like no it's there's nothing no it's it, it, every panel in this movie book is like a dare okay <laughs> <laughs> but somebody the, got really drunk and had a really tight schedule and just went for it but the art well, it, it, here's the thing, though. I love Murphy Anderson, and I know Murphy Anderson loves Lou Fine, and he was a big influence on him. But the art in this book is a real problem for me. Really? Yeah. Do you know why? Uh, <laughs> does it go back to the devil baby on page seven? Well, it, it, that's definitely a contributory factor, no doubt. <laughs> I love that image. 
but this this book, this story is the visual representation of everything you've accused Roy Thomas of doing over the course of Secret Origins. Murphy Anderson literally went in there and redrew uh, the vast majority of the original origin story. Like I, I don't, I, I'm not going to assume. I mean, it, I'm, he might have used technological means. He might have been able to do this freehand, but it's literally the exact same panels. Now he's he's opened them up some because you know they did a lot of that golden age stuff where you have these tiny little panels. So there's a lot of instances where he'll take a, an eight panel page and turn it into a six panel page and let it breathe a little bit more. Or because the lettering's smaller, he'll draw in some aspects of an image that were cut off by captions previously. But if you look at the original story, which is available online, it's a public domain, non-copyrighted story. You compare it, it's it's outright redrawn directly from the Fine. With the occasional panel that it's a Murphy Anderson, which when I first read the story, I didn't notice. And now when I look at it, it's like, wow, it's really jarring. You can see there is a Murphy Anderson head and then boom, here's a Lou Fine head. It's like, wow, this is really obvious that that's done. So even with all these little tweaks and, and bizarre, like little stupid things like – you know, in one version he has a flint knife, and in another version he has a bone knife. It's like, why would you feel the need to make that distinction in a story of this gonzo? But yeah, Murphy just goes in there and, and is just redrawing it as faithfully as possible, with the exception of the occasional glowing meteor and the occasional new panel. And really, the only original thing in this one is that last page, which is a bizarre thing anyway, because it's basically a pinup shot of black condor like trying to block you from seeing the rest of his stories like putting his arms out and going no stop here um and then they they you know from his armpits emits the rest of his core uh lore um and that's all murphy anderson but the, almost the entire rest of the story is line for line the lou found original just well just i know arranged like cut up and, and reorganized into a more contemporary layout basically well, supposedly Anderson begged Roy Thomas to let him do these stories because he was such a fan of Lou Fine. So maybe he had the same sort of slavish love for these stories that Roy Thomas had in terms of the writing of them. Maybe he just didn't want to – maybe all he could do was embellish on the first and really couldn't put his staple on it because he thought it would be a betrayal or something. I don't know. Yeah. I mean I, I, I'm not faulting Murphy Anderson because it's not – you know, I mean, they mention it in the little letters column that you know he was he was very reverential, and and they allude to him really going in there and trying to do the story. But it is another one of these instances where when the, the credit says Art Murphy Anderson, it's like no, the art's Lou Fine, you know, being uh, what, what you, like one of those cover recreations. Mm-hmm. It's like you don't get to you don't you can put after on there or something, but crediting without that that major. You know, asterisk qualifiers like, no, this is Lou Fine's artwork being redrawn by Murphy Anderson. And the thing, too, is you understand, like, the archive editions, that's what they do with those as well, mm-hmm. is that they don't have original film that's of a quality where they can reproduce it. So they have to actually go in there and redraw the artwork. You know, again, they're, they're very specifically trying to draw, like, the original artist and, and being as accurate as possible. But you don't see those guys' names on those dust jackets when those books come out. So it, it's disingenuous to me to, to put Murphy. Murphy Anderson's name in the credit box when it's a recreation. So that's that's something I don't I just don't think is playing fair. Just like with when Roy Thomas does it, where he's taking line for line reproductions of the original stories. Yeah, and I mean I've made that same argument with Roy Thomas, so I can't argue against it in this case. Um, if I said anything, then I would at least assume it took Murphy Anderson longer to draw this than it took Roy to write it. But there yeah. is that. At least there's a, there's an actual like if you're the the manual physical act of recreating this still qualifies it as artistry. It's more craftsmanship 
but it's still physically manually produced by this person as opposed to read from another person's writing and then typed on a typewriter. Mm-hmm. I would – you would almost – see, I've, I've kind of made the – I've made the comparison that Roy Thomas is sort of transcribing these scripts and and maybe this is almost like a sort of like an art restoration but yeah, put on like, a different like piece. Archive edition. It's yeah. it's he's he's restoring the original artwork to something that would be printable under modern printing techniques of the time. It's just put Luke Fine's name in really big letters because that's what you need to do, because that's his artwork. I haven't read the original one because I got to the end of this, and while I did enjoy it, I had no desire to read other Black Condor stories, including the original that this was based on. Um, I did, I, so Condor was based in whatever the Himalayas, Pakistan region for the first couple issues, and then he came to New York. And it looks like the story where he takes over for Senator Wright is in Cracked Comics number 11. Yeah, there's actually – there's a whole bunch of stuff. You You might actually, again – it may be worth your time if you enjoyed the story to go and go to some place like Comic Book Plus and go through those stories because you, they, they are pretty fun. Like the, the his second adventure, there's another evil guy named Ali who apparently no oh, sorry it's Ali Khan, no apparent relationship to this guy. But if you want to infer it, if you want to Roy Thomas it, that you have that option. And he's wanting to marry this uh, English woman who's inheriting like a kingdom in the region where Black Condor is active. And when she refuses him, he sets up a situation kind of like the first Iron Man movie where her whole party gets killed. He captures her and is trying to to force her into marrying him. And Black Condor intervenes. And uh, uh, it's it's not a battle story. It, it sets up a, a, something that's common in the early stories where there's a woman in peril who is totally like just raping Black Condor with her eyes by the end of the story. She's just like – and, and that's the thing that I think is interesting about this character – and it's true, it was true of Dollman and it's true of, of Black Condor. These are beefcake comics. I don't oh, think yeah. people understand that, you know, even back in 1938, women liked to schlick and, and there were a lot of guys in the closet that were probably enjoying some fapping. And this was probably the closest thing that they could get to porn. Because this guy is doing like – that's the thing that they talk about a lot with Lou Fine is that, you know, Jim Stranko learned how to draw anatomy from Lou Fine just like Murphy Anderson did and a lot of other artists. This guy's anatomy was so good that he became our re- reference like prior to somebody like Bern Hogarth coming along with things like Dynamic Anatomy. You could look at and swipe from – Lou Fine to produce whole new works because the anatomy was so good. But these are still naked guys twisting the and contorting their bodies. And somebody was appreciating that in a, in a way that I, as a heterosexual man, can't. But I can see where, where they're coming from because if this were a chick, I'd, I'd, and some of the later artists did throw cheesecake elements into those stories. This character was multi purpose. And I, I think he served those purposes as well. And you see that in these early comic books. They, they really lavish a lot of time and effort into showing this guy contorting himself in ways that are pretty darn sensual, actually. And so then the women are clearly lusting after this guy because like in the third story, okay, there's a daughter of the Raja of Singat who has apparently befriended the Black Condor. And she's going to go to the U.S. with a ruby. And there are guys who are trying to steal this from her. So the Black Condor's first trip to New York is actually from Calcutta to defend this this thing. And he dresses in plain clothes and is able to appear as though he's just like normal Joe and saves her time and again. And again, at the end of the story, she's like, it isn't goodbye until we meet again. She's totally lusting after this dude. <laughs> she never appears again, but it makes sure to reinforce. This guy is hot stuff. And, and the chicks dig him. The guy is want to be him, you know, that kind of thing. So it's just an interesting aspect of the character. And it's one of those things that we tend to forget about is that, you know, they were human beings back then too. And they, they, uh, they found all kinds of enjoyment in these characters. 
And I don't even know if it was just back then, because uh, speaking about the beefcake nature, just looking at the cover by Jose Luis Garcia Lopez, praise be his name, that is a really homoerotic image of, of Black Condor, it's, I think. It's I don't know pretty if there's, undeniable. Because if they wanted to drape this guy in all sorts of black, you know, they could have done that. But the guy is basically wearing a Speedo and, like, some, some ornamental gear. There's nothing getting in the way of anything that you want to see on this character. And, and in those original comic books, even though he's wearing black trunks, they made sure they spent a lot of time drawing this dude's butt, okay? <laughs> they just they – were, they, they were lovingly crafting his glutes and more power to him. You know, I, I get equal time. That's cool, but you can't not notice it. And there's something like when you see the Submariner dressed in less than this, actually, but he's just got that resting bitch face. <laughs> really, it, it's really different. But when you see him on this cover with basically Superman's face and those baby blues and that big smile, it's wow. Well, that and if you look at this, the old Submariner comic books, too, the appeal of that character was that he was the antihero. The appeal <laughs> of that guy was he's running around and he's just smashing everything and he has no dams to give. Um, so he, he obviously was targeting a different audience. Now, I understand that he had some appeal in those same circles as far as Beefcake goes, but that wasn't his primary goal. I really do think Black Condor's primimary goal was to be the, the counterbalance to Phantom Lady. Interesting. And we still never got a secret origin of her in this book. Yeah, well, and that's the thing, too, is, it, you know, the, the main character that Lou Fine is known for is the Ray. And that's the one that, like, if you go to the historical history of comics, they're lavishing all kinds of praise on the Ray. And I don't get to cover the Ray because they never made one for him. So I don't know. But that, that's actually, that's the one, that was the exemplar of Lou Fine's uh, sequential art and his, his superhero work basically was the Ray. Before we leave this guy, uh, I wanted to just touch a little bit on the legacy, actually, of this character. Uh, as I mentioned during the publication history, there were a few other characters who had the name Black Condor. The second guy was a Native American named Ryan Kendall, which is uh, probably one of the more uh, Caucasian-sounding names you can have. Um, Especially he did not look like a Ryan Kendall. That, one of the things I liked about that book was Rags Morales was drawing it, mm-hmm. and he, he looked like he was something other than a white guy. He had you know tan skin, and he was drawn by a guy named Morales, and I, I always kind of hoped that they would try to, to lean into that a little bit more, but Ryan Kendall. And then you've got the third one was uh, John Truillo, I think. And uh, who was supposed to be of Mayan descent, I think. So the more recent versions, they've gone kind of like staked him out as a character based on or with a, like an ethnic background of, you know, this regional to the Southwest America, mm-hmm. which makes sense because that's where you would find condors. Well, and they also had the uh, the Masterman comic that Grant Morrison and Jim Lee did for Multiversity, and that featured an African American black condor. So they were, they were going the different way of obviously playing around with mm-hmm. black condor. So, because we like to play this game, if I was redoing if I was like building this character from the ground up and kind of maintaining some of the aspects of this origin. I would actually make him a native Pakistani character. I wouldn't have his parents be like traveling white people, like archaeologists or anything. I would just have him a victim of like tribal warfare in the Hindu Kush mountains, and he grows up and he's basically he's got like the same tropes except he's Pakistani and make him a sort of regional hero from that area. You, you probably, I mean. The condor doesn't work because it's not where the bird is from, but something along those lines, I think that would be more interesting. It would be more. Thing we don't have tigers in North America. That doesn't stop us from naming things tiger. You know, just because you're from Ireland doesn't mean you have to be called shamrock. 
So I'll, I'll give them that. It's just don't do an origin story where you have condors in Mongolia. That's <laughs> where it's tricky. Right. Now, I already told you my origin. He, he, he's a communist he, and, and a cannibal. So that's the way I would go with it. I just totally throw it all down the tubes. Crimson <laughs> Condor, the, the, the turncoat evil uh, Soviet Justice Society slash Freedom Fighters character. I like it. Usually I end this, these segments with recommended readings. I mean, honestly, just get on Comic Book Plus and for free, go look at the, the old stories. You don't, I don't even necessarily read them. I've read some of them. You don't necessarily want to do that. But the, 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 the stories are pretty fun. It's like the, the, the fourth one, out of nowhere, you've got Yellow Peril. I don't know how he manages. Well, I guess he's in Mongolia, so maybe Yellow Peril actually makes more sense than you know uh, uh, Islamic raiders and stuff. But uh, he, it, and it's this bizarre, futuristic, technicolor uh, uh, Shangri-La type place, but evil called Mount Doom. And Black Panther debuts his old man disguise that he wears a number of times throughout the stories. And he fights this guy's daughter, and I think that's where he gets his black ray gun because he like disarms her, and then he starts running around blasting people with this, this blaster gun, and that happens for the rest of the series. So I assume that's where that came from. And it's just this totally random, weird story where the whole thing blows up at the end. The daughter dies. The bad guy dies. Those, those are fun kind of stories. Um, they're, they're swimming in yellow peril, Islamophobia, just phobia. You know everything. You know everything that's not a white guy is evil in these stories. In set number seven, there's actually an American Indian plot to create like this giant golem thing. And they literally say that it's to destroy the white man. Okay? So you've got to be able to buy into the racism of this strip but if you just look at the pretty artwork and not just Lou Fines a lot of the guys who followed him were really interesting I did point out that there was a cheesecake later on in the strip too which is nice because I mean these women in skirts and, and, and bilious shirts it's amazing it's like they've all had water dumped on them and every freaking curve is delineated by these guys it's free guys just go read flip through it for free if you like it you like it if you don't then write an article about it on slate uh, uh, you know america what as we were 60 years ago you know there's a lot oh there's another thing too that i have to point out the guy actually has an arch nemesis it's actually and it's it's interesting because it happens after he becomes a senator once he comes to the states and he becomes a senator, the strip has a bit of a, a social justice quality to it, where he's continuously pitted against Jasper Crow, the okay. industrialist that killed the senator, and this guy's always getting involved with like union busting and stuff. And so Black Panther actually becomes this. I mean, sorry, I keep saying Black Panther, like the character I want to talk about way more than Black Condor, but Black Condor actually like is taking this guy on over and over again, and this guy pops up in like every other story for a long period of time, and he's kind of a cool character, and he has a really awesome uh ending story because he's never you never actually see him die this is a guy who would be available to be used again but in issue 26 of crack comics he actually lures black condor back to mongolia it's one of the only times that they go back to an exotic setting after the ship uh, strip settles in the states and is trying to kill him at the same place where his parents were murdered and in the end he he, he walks off he's, he's delusional from the heat and he walks into this sort of death valley scenario and he's just seeing images of having defeated black condor and become the man that he always wanted to be the the powerful lex luthor presidential you know ruler of america and he's just wandering in the desert having this these this delusion in his mind those are pretty nifty stories in issue 19 black condor saves uh, and, and it's no sort of analog at all. It's, it's Franklin Delano Roosevelt and gets a congressional medal. That's the kind of stuff you don't get to see anymore. So there, there's a lot of cool stuff there. Even if you just flip through it, it's worth giving it a toss for the artwork alone. Or again, if you're just pleasuring yourself over Black Condor's physique. You know, you, I'm not here to judge. It's on the internet. People do all sorts of things like that on the internet. 
we embrace that here. We encourage it. We don't embrace we uh, we as individuals don't embrace ourselves on the black condor. But if you want to embrace yourself on the black condor, Mazel Tov. I, I have no justification other than the fact that this story really entertained the hell out of me for like the stupid, the dumbest kind of reasons. But hey, that's what it was. All right. Well, thank you very much, Frank, for being part of this episode of the Secret Origins podcast. Where can people find you if they want to hear more of your thoughts on characters and superheroes and comics? Oh, uh, well, I've got a bunch of podcasts that are in various states of, of continuous production. Same goes for blogs. Um, hopefully, by the time this episode airs, the Marvel Superheroes podcast will be back up and running again. It, it took a hit when I decided to spend just ungodly amounts of time putting together a March 960th anniversary podcast special. Uh, it really kind of wiped me out. But hopefully, by the time this comes on, you guys will be able to hear new material along those lines. Uh, we should be gearing up toward our big Secret Wars 50th episode. So. Awesome. Uh, which will guest our people that may or may not be on this podcast you're listening to right now. So, I know at least one of them, supposedly, because we recorded something about two years ago for it. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, thank you very much, Frank. I'll talk to you again later. Look on the bright side. There's a one guy that made his podcasting debut on a podcast that was recorded in like November of last year that still hasn't surfaced. So, oh, you, you, a lot of folks have it worse, dude. <laughs> Look on the bright side of life. As you heard me say at the beginning of this show, this episode of the Secret Origins podcast is dedicated to the memory of Murphy Anderson, who died on Friday, October 23rd at the age of 79. If your knowledge of Anderson's work is limited to his pencils on the Secret Origins of Doll Man in issue 8, Uncle Sam in issue 19, and Black Condor in this issue, then you've seen an extraordinary talent channeling an all-time legend from the Golden Age. But you haven't seen nearly enough. Anderson's pencils are awesome, but his real craft was inking, especially when he worked with Kurt Swan on Superman and Action Comics. They defined the look of the Man of Tomorrow for more than a decade. If you've seen a picture of Superman from the 70s, you've probably seen Murphy Anderson's work, even if you didn't know his name. I'll admit to a certain level of apprehension when I heard about his passing Friday night because I knew Frank and I had talked about his work on this episode and that I would be editing this show the day after. I crossed my fingers, hoping neither of us said anything disrespectful about Anderson, which turned out to be a baseless fear. The man was simply too great. The worst thing we could say about him was nobody swiped Lou Fine better than Murphy Anderson. I also breathed a little easier when I realized this would not be the last time I get to praise his work on the Secret Origins podcast. Anderson inked The Flash's origin in the second annual, so that'll be coming up in the future. Before that, however, I think you'll hear a lot more about Murphy Anderson in the next two months. I'm planning to cover his work on the Starman-Black Canary team-ups in the Brave and the Bold issues 61 and 62 on my Black Canary podcast, Flowers and Fishnets. That'll come out sometime in November. You'll also hear some Murphy Anderson tributes on various podcasts such as Two True Freaks Presents Back to the Bins, the Comic Book Time Machine, the Fire and Water Podcast, Head Speaks and Task Force X Podcasts, Professor Allen's Comics Reading Journal on the Relatively Geeky Network, King Size Comics, Giant Size Fun, Myth Making Etc., and many more to come. Anderson's death is sad news for comic book fans, but if any bright spot comes of it, the podcasting and blogging community have a ton of amazing comics to revisit in honor of his memory. Okay, let's get on to the listener feedback section. 
On Twitter, episode 20 received favorites and retweets from Alan Middleton, Ange, Anthony Durso, Between the Pages blog, Christopher Warden, Cindy Womack, Coffee and Comics blog, Comic Reflections, Dr. G, the Nerdologist, Film and Water podcast, Firestorm fan, Greg Arujo, The Hammer Strikes, Jerzak, Luke Dobb, Matthew Barton, The Nerdy Girl Express, Nostalgic Fan, Robert Lewis, Siskoid, Stella, Trekker Talk, and Waffle Danvers. If you helped promote the show and I did not mention your name, please let me know and I'll make sure to give you a shout out next time. Ange tweeted how happy he was to see that Barbara Gordon was reading Dune in one of the panels from the Batgirl origin. Uh, I had joked last episode was ruined by one pushy co-host referring to Shag, and Rob Kelly from the Film and Water podcast replied, You can't shake hands with the devil and say you're only kidding. I've never heard that expression before, but I like it. Over on the Secret Origins Facebook page, last episode got likes and shares from Alan Middleton, Alan Williams, Andy Capellish, Anthony Durso, Chris Ivey, Clinton Robson, Comic Reflections, Gene Hendricks, G.I. Joe, A Real American Headcast, Gotham Shiorin, Gene Hendricks, Gord Tolton, Greg Arujo, Greg Barr, The Hammer Strikes, Head Speaks, Igor Glushkin, The Irredeemable Shag, Jay Harris, Jeff Mayo, Jimmy McGlinchey, Joe Crawford, Cord Industries, Kyle Benning, Luke Dobb, Max Romero, Michael Wagner, Nicholas Prom, The Pulp to Pixel Podcast, Richard Field, Sean Emmons, Sean Engel, Sean Myers, Siskoid, Tim Wallace, Trevor Owen Williams, Van Z, and Zeb Oswald. Sean Myers said both stories are great origins, and Clinton Robinson said issue 20 was the issue that got him seriously interested in Golden Age heroes. That's a big win for Dr. Midnight right there. David Gutierrez said the episode started off great with the delightful moose, that's Stella's nickname by the way, and then a shag thing happened. Oi. Picking up on that, Richard Field said awesome podcasts starting out, then shag appeared. Uh, then he said the show keeps getting better and better, and I love the three-host portion of the podcast. And Stella is awesome. She should be brought back each week. Unfortunately, Stella won't be coming back to the show because girls are icky and complicated, and I don't understand what they want. Zeb Oswalt liked the cover to issue 20, but said, Unless Babs is careful, she'll hit the wire Dr. Midnight is on and make him fall. She'll have to pull in on the flip I think she's about to do. Even if it's just a leap over, her foot would hit the cable the doctor is on. I don't think anyone else read that deeply into the cover, but Zeb does have a point. Babs could easily knock Dr. Midnight off the telephone wire. Why the hell are they even up there, anyway? Finally, Van Z pointed out a missed opportunity for Shag and I to discuss the very last panel of the Dr. Midnight story, which said, See more of Dr. Midnight in the Young All-Stars. After that, Van Z posted an image to illustrate exactly how well Charles McNighter was used in that book, and it's a page of the doctor diagnosing Iron Monroe with a venereal disease. See, that's the real reason Roy Thomas needed to create the Young All-Stars, because he couldn't give Earth to Superman gonorrhea. And with that, we segue over to the WordPress page, where Diablo Frank is still playing catch-up on some of the older episodes. Frank talked about liking the concept of the Doom Patrol, but never finding a creative run he felt executed the concept well until the Keith Giffen and Mike Clark series. He says he didn't like Robot Man, he loved Rita Farr, and he finally grew to like Negative Man the way Giffen wrote the character. Of the origin story, Frank said, John Byrne is usually his own worst inker, but he worked well enough here, though his style is far too conventional to suit this team. Imagine if instead of The Shadow, the creative team of Andy Helfer, Bill Sienkiewicz, and Kyle Baker had taken this on. 
I would have liked to see that. Yes, I would. I really would. Frank continued, I understand the X-Men comparison in hindsight, but it forgets which team came first, and also that the themes of bigotry didn't become prevalent in X-Men until Roy Thomas took over the writing duties of the book a year into the series. Further, as you pointed out, they're much closer to a dark twist on the Fantastic Four. Three People doesn't make much of a patrol, but they had the benefit over the F4 in allowing the team to expand while maintaining the core trio. I'd have been a lot more forgiving of the various relaunches if Elastigirl had been present and the Chief had stayed dead. I also agree that the Doom Patrol should totally be part of the next wave of the DC Cinematic Universe offerings. Since Warner Brothers is set on doing sour, tragic properties, that fits them to a T, though some gallows humor would be welcome. That would make them a hybrid of the FF, the X-Men, and the Guardians of the Galaxy, which sure sounds like a home run. On the Creeper origin, Frank said, The Creeper is one of the very first comic stories I ever read, and nostalgia dictates that I try to like the character, but I don't. He is an excellent visual repudiation of those who would undervalue Stan Lee's contribution to creating the Marvel Universe. Steve Ditko's work was raw, mad genius. But without an editor and a scripter to harness his energies, he was just raw and mad. The concept is a hot steaming mess of influences and ideas that somehow turn to ash rather than fertilizer. Starting out by trying to meld the shadow with his own Spider-Man was a good way to go, but the wretched design, unfocused narrative, and inane pseudoscience demolished Ditko's efforts. Insert Killjoy in the Creeper's place, disregard that idiotic origin with the matter transmitter, and this could have worked. Nobody told Ditko no or massaged the material, and we end up with one of the worst things to spring from his imagination. Further, the Creeper is one of Ditko's only notable creations at DC, so people won't leave it alone, even though they should. Fixing the Creeper would be a challenge. The most obvious way to go would be embracing the supernatural, so Dan DiDio did exactly that. The problem with that angle is that it's virtually identical to Jack Kirby's Etrigan, immediately damning him through comparison to an ironically purer take. You just reminded me, Frank, that we never got an Etrigan story in this series. Damn it. Moving on to the feedback from last episode, Paul Hicks from the Waiting for Doom podcast mentioned, I haven't listened yet, but I note that this is one of a handful of issues available on Comixology. Uh, That's true. Seven or eight issues from this series are available on Comixology. I actually read issue 20 digitally before I got the paper copy. You can probably tell from episode to episode which comics I have digital copies of, because when I post the covers and the interior art, I use the digital versions if I have them, because the colors and quality is a lot sharper than some of the beat-to-crap paperbacks that I have. Uh, During the episode, the controversial idea of a Batman-Batgirl romance was brought up, You know, I shouldn't even call it controversial. The universally hated notion of a Bruce Babs relationship came up, which led to some impassioned responses from a couple of listeners. Chris Franklin from the Supermates podcast and the Power Records podcast, which is part of the Fire and Water podcast, said, I've never been much of a fan of the Bruce Babs relationship, but they were originally closer in age than her and Robin. The 60s TV series certainly had more flirtations between Batman and Batgirl than Batgirl and Robin. The animated series really de-aged Babs into a contemporary of Dick, but then they did that icky bit where Bruce and Babs had a relationship at some point after the new Batman adventures, as revealed on Batman Beyond. Recent comic continuations of Batman Beyond told that Bruce actually got Babs pregnant right before she restarted her relationship with Dick, but she was conveniently brutalized in an alleyway and lost the baby. I've been disgusted by many modern comics, but that one took the cake. 
Nathaniel Wayne from 90s Comics Retrial, which is part of the Council of Geeks podcast, responded to Chris saying, Okay, I love the animated version of Barbara, and from what I've seen, it was only that weird bit of flirting between her and Batman in the Sub-Zero movie that felt weird and out of place. But now you've got to taint the whole darn thing by telling me how the comic book continuation of a great animated series makes things weird and stupid and sickening. To steal a line I first heard from Ryan, you totally harshed my mellow. Chris replied that he hated the Revelation too. I actually threw the book down, and it was one checked out from the library where my wife works. It's bad fanfic, officially sanctioned by DC. Sorry I brought it up, but it's another example of creators having some sick fascination with brutalizing the character. Then Kyle Benning from Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtle Tuesdays, which is part of his King Size Comics Giant Size Fun podcast, jumped in saying, And here I thought most bad fanfic writing in the Bat book titles was limited to Devin Grayson's Nightwing run and Judd Winnick's Catwoman. Yikes. Sad to hear that's tainted the precious DC animated universe. Then Nathaniel came back and agreed with Shag on the issue of returning Barbara to the role of Batgirl. I feel like scrapping Oracle kind of undoes a great deal of development the character had in that time, plus removes a terrific disabled role model of which there are precious few. I've started to have a vomitous gut reaction to the reinstating of the iconic versions of these characters. Half the reason one version is iconic is because somebody at the editorial level has declared it so, and prioritizes one incarnation of a character over another. It's fan favoritism infecting the editorial process. I've come to the belief that if a character is retired and replaced, then it really needs to stay that way, unless the replacement was designed from the get-go to be temporary. For example, Asriel taking on the mantle of Batman. I'm sorry, it's not fair to fans of Cassandra Kane or Stephanie Brown to say, nope, sorry, not as good, doesn't count, when fans of Barbara will always have their earlier adventures no matter what. Sure, they didn't literally erase stories with those versions of Batgirl from actual existence, but whenever the earlier true version of a character comes back, it basically renders anybody who held the title in the interim as a pretender, a placeholder until the proper version comes back. And that's poppycock. Poppycock, I say. I mention this all the time, but it keeps coming up. This is a case where I completely understand and respect Nathaniel's position, and I don't even have an argument against it, other than my personal preference for those characters who were made iconic during the Silver and Bronze Age. I get why so many people preferred Barbara Gordon as Oracle over Batgirl. I get why people love Kyle Rayner and Guy Gardner more than Hal Jordan and Jon Stewart. I get why so many people were pissed off that Wally West was brushed aside when Barry Allen came back from the dead. I totally get it. These characters were better written and better developed, and they were yours. It doesn't make sense for DC to always go back to the version of the Flash or Green Lantern or Batgirl that they had in the 60s when there have been numerous replacements in the interim. But I'm one of those kids who fell in love with the icons before I read the comics, and I keep coming back to this primal, instinctive response. If I could read one Batgirl, I want it to be Barbara. If I could read one Green Lantern, I want it to be Hal. If I could read one Robin, I want it to be Dick. That's just me. Uh, Chris left another comment praising Batgirl Year One. I think everyone who read it loves it, so if you haven't read it, track it down. Batgirl Year One. 
Chris said, When I first got this issue of Secret Origins, I was flummoxed by the new origin of Barbara, with her being Jim's niece. Why not just say Babs was off at college during Batman Year One? Why didn't someone at DC request Miller drop a line like that in his story? It wouldn't have hurt anything, and may have honestly made the Gordons' already strained relationship even more so, as a couple dealing with a late-in-life pregnancy after they already had a child grown and out of the house. Barbara Kessel does her best with it, but it was always one of the clunkier retcons that most fans just kind of put off in a corner to forget about. Barbara's career path doesn't really fit in with any kind of restructured DC timeline, so it's odd that they chose to shoehorn it all in here. It was kind of like this and the Batgirl special were putting her house in order before it was shut down permanently. Don't forget, the killing joke was in the works for years before it was finally published. Rob Kelly from the Aquaman Shrine, the Fire and Water podcast, and the Film and Water podcast said, While I do think the poses on the cover are a little wonky, overall I really like the mood, and as I've said, I'm a sucker for the ones where the characters are interacting. Leonardi's art on the Batgirl segment is terrific, while art on Dr. Midnight is merely serviceable. I've always loved the character, but I think his costume is such that, when drawn either badly or indifferently, can look really goofy. But when it's done right, see Matt Wagner's who's who listening, then it's gangbusters. Totally agree, and everyone comes back to that who's who listing of Dr. Midnight that Matt Wagner drew. If you're hearing this and you've never seen the image, look it up online. And Rob clarified a question that I had asked from the previous episode about the cover to issue 19. He said, I meant Alex Ross would paint the I Want You part, while Rude, one of the few artists who can channel Kirby's energy without just ripping him off, would handle the Guardian. That actually makes more sense now, and I can picture that in my mind. That would be gorgeous. I like that. Kyle Benning came back for another comment. I'm not going to read it because it's very long and detailed, but you should check it out because he goes through a lot of the publishing timeline of Dr. Midnight and when national periodicals and all-American comics came together. He talks about other Golden Age characters named Midnight and why the spelling on Charles McKnighter's name was so different. Just read Kyle's comment if you get the chance. It's good. And by the way, I already mentioned it, but Kyle's starting a brand new feature on his podcast devoting to the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. It's supposed to be a regular installment coming out on Tuesdays for, you know, alliterative purposes. Uh, the first episode has already come out, and it's fun. Check that out as part of his King Size Comics Giant Size Fun feed. Martin Gray from the blog Too Dangerous for a Girl made fun of Shag, thinking the focus of the cover was on Batgirl's breasts. But honestly, I think Martin was the only one who picked up on it. Shag talking about Hot Woman in comics just sounds like white noise to the rest of us. Jeff Nettleton said, Like Stella, I don't think every hero needs tragedy in their past to inspire them. Barbara was inspired by her father, as Jim Gordon will always be, and by Batman. She was driven to be the best. That's all you need. Totally agree with that. And he also said, I met Wagner and John K. Snyder III at a convention in 1991, where they talked about a Dr. Midnight book they were working on. The series was published in 1999. Why it took eight years, I have no idea. Of course, Wagner had art from Batman Grendel, which looked like it would never happen, thanks to Comico's bankruptcy, but did come out a couple of years later. I really wish it had been Wagner here, but this is okay. I can't quite figure out if the artist is trying to ape the simplistic style of the 40s, or just draws that way naturally. And Jeff commented on the music, of course, asking how could you leave out Manfred Mann's Blinded by the Light when discussing Charles McKnighter's new night vision and light issues. It seems unnatural. You youngsters and your hippity-hop music. Yeah, of course, because the Wilson Pickett song I went with is so current. 
Ange from Comic Box Commentary said, It is a bit chilling to read in the letters column about the upcoming Moore Bolland trade, knowing how that ended. He also said, I believe that the blonde imaginary friend of Babs is Supergirl, a small homage to a time gone by. I agree with that. Finally, Michael Chiaroscuro talked about his love for Batgirl and said, I really enjoyed the Secret Origins story, even if I didn't and still don't care for all of the new grittier elements that were thrown in at the time, like the troubled family life, etc. Overall, though, I thought it was a good portrayal of Babs as a character. It showed her strong will and intelligence. And Leonardi's art was brilliant as usual. That splash page is gorgeous. I would love to have seen Leonardi pencil a Bat book for the long run back then. I bet it would have been amazing. Definitely an underrated talent from that era. Yeah, uh, Leonardi on a Batman book or a Robin book or a Nightwing book in the late 80s, that would have been awesome. And Michael concludes with, As always, great episode, Ryan. You make it highly entertaining even for someone like me who doesn't own many of these issues. Granted, I'm a big DC fan and know that era especially well, but I'd worried that I might not enjoy the podcast as much if I didn't have the issues as reference. Not at all. You and your guests delve into so many interesting topics and subtopics related to the characters you're covering that it's always a wide-ranging and enjoyable podcast. Thank you very much for that comment, Michael. It means a lot to me. Uh, and thank you to everyone else who wrote in, left a comment, clicked like, or share, or comment, or favorite, or retweet. All of it is very, very appreciated. Uh, and big thanks again to my guests on this episode, Tim Wallace from Cord Industries blog, Mike Gillis from Radio vs. the Martians podcast, and its brand new spinoff, Podcast a La Vista, baby, and Diablo Frank from the Rolled Spine podcast family, which includes the Marvel Superheroes show, the Underguides, DC Bloodlines, the Idle Head of Diablo, and probably more as I'm speaking. Before wrapping up this episode, I wanted to pass on some information that was shared with me today. Sean Engel, the host of Just One of the Guys, a Green Lantern podcast, and a guest host on Episode 7 of this very show, was hospitalized this weekend due to an infection stemming from gallstones. Sean is healing in the hospital, and hopefully he'll make a full and speedy recovery. I know I speak for everyone in the community when I wish him the best, and I hope you keep Sean in your thoughts. And that is all for this sort of emotional whirlwind of an episode. As always, feedback for the show can be left at secretoriginspodcast.wordpress.com or the Facebook page at facebook.com backslash secretoriginspodcast. You can find me on Twitter at ryandaily01 or at blackcanaryfan or the username countdrunkula. You can also email your feedback to blackcanaryfan at gmail.com and please let me know if the message is private and you don't want it read on a future episode. The Secret Origins Podcast is not affiliated with DC Comics. The views expressed on the show belong solely to the speaker. All music, audio clips, and quoted text are used for entertainment purposes and believed covered under fair use. And since I make no money off this podcast, no copyright infringement is intended. Thanks for listening.
Oh my god, that that black condor story, by the way, is insane. <laughs> oh gosh, he learns to fly by watching birds and mimicking them, and it's like, uh, how? In what way does this make sense? And I think Roy Thomas just said. Okay, there's a meteorite that crashes near, and maybe radiation mutates him, and that's why he can fly. And I still, oh. <laughs> I have never, I have never, never read it. I bought this issue when it came out. I have read the Jonah Hex story several times. I have never flipped past that uh, that middle section and gone to Black Condor. I just can't bring myself to do it. It's even just scanning it, you get the picture. It's amazing. Now, I will say the story as written is better than it had a right to be. <laughs> it's um, and and once I was basically, I, I forced myself to say, okay, I can accept Tarzan being raised in the mm. jungle. I can accept Aquaman being raised by dolphins, sort of. You know, as as far back as human history, we've got myths of people being raised by wolves or animals or anything. I was like, okay, just take it just a little bit further and say he was raised by vultures and he can fly. Just go with this. <laughs> once, once I forced myself to do that, the story was not bad. And I will leave I just, it at that. <laughs> I love that he learned by watching their movements, which means to me, it's heavily implied that he must flap his arms. <laughs> <laughs> that's amazing god so, i'm uh, i'm all for championing 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 the underdog sorry um i i will i will defend that johnny depp lone ranger <laughs> to my dying breath um but no i i can't i can't buy a guy watching birds and and learning to fly it just that's oh. one of those things like, i cannot wrap my head around <laughs> It's like a Darwin Award. It's, <laughs> it's like this is a crazy person who died doing this. Well, we get that panel. He actually, the first time he tries it, he falls what should be to his death because he lands on his head, like neck <laughs> first. It's like, okay, you, you should not survive it. Oh, oh, it's, oh, they make so many, so many conciliations for logic and, and reason in this story. 